Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, well, we're going to talk about more questions, your questions about anything uh, related to digital media production, not anything, anything, but uh, digital media production. And today is, you know, in the United States is Labor Day. And so we'll go as long as you ask questions. <laughs> we're not going to push it too hard, uh, but we're here. Um, we've got a great panel. Uh, Noah Sargent hasn't been here for a little while and he is he is here. We're excited to have him. Uh, we're excited to have everybody here, but Noah hasn't been here for a little while. He's like the prodigal son. He's returned and... And um, so anyway, so uh, so we're, we're happy to have them. Uh, if you have questions, go ahead and throw those into Makana right now. You can, of course, use the new drop uh, and uh, you'll see a little logo here. I think somewhere we're going to put up a little thing. <laughs> we're forcing everybody to think about how to do this. There's a graphic that the, uh, the team will put up here in a second, maybe. But you'll see a QR code and you can actually use it. There it is. Um, and uh, they weren't ready for me to just call it out and force them to do it. Um, anyway, so uh, but it's but you can also just use the uh, URL askofficehours.com. The cool thing about this is that you don't uh, you don't need to log in. You don't need to do anything else. Just put your first and last name in there uh, and ask the question, and uh, and then it goes into like a little little box for us to look at, and then we push it into the regular system. So, uh, if you've got a question there, you can you can you can pop that up if you'd like. All right, let's go ahead and jump into those questions, Bill. What do we have? First one comes from our old friend Dennis Champion Walker in Nottingham in the UK. And Dennis asks, has anyone tried the OC Ghost Stream deck? I came across a review on YouTube this morning. It looks interesting. And he's got a link there. Yeah, I think I think these look interesting. I mean, I think we got another question coming up right after it. Uh, it feels like, I mean, at the price, it feels very close to the to the Black Magic one. I mean, there's a couple things that it has that the Black Magic uh, doesn't have. Um, so it's it's I think it's got a it's got a T-bar, doesn't it? I mean, I, I think if I remember correctly. Hold on, when I looked at it. Um, but it's got, you know, this is a, it's it's going after the, I mean, obviously it's it's going after the um, the ATEM. The problem really that it has, and it's got a couple things, it's got less buttons, which is actually probably a feature um, as opposed to a, as opposed to a liability. I mean, the, the funny thing is, is that with the, with the Blackmagic switcher, I think my number one request now for the Blackmagic switcher is less buttons or allow me to program reprogram all those buttons that'd be an amazing stream deck in addition to a switcher if i could just tie those buttons into something different um, as opposed to a whole bunch of buttons that i never use um so uh so that's the that's the thing that i'm trying to figure out so this one's a little bit clearer that way you've got a couple encoders it's got a t-bar on it so you can do transitions and so it's it's a cool little um you know way to rethink it the problem is, is really at at 295 um it is you know, not a significant savings over the Black Magic one. It's, I mean, it really feels like a knockoff with a couple of things that they thought might be better, but it doesn't fit into the rest of the ecosystem. And and so I don't quite understand. And all the controls, if I'm correct, um, you do all the controls through, um, you know, through the monitor output. So you're not, you don't have a computer. Now people might see, well, it's nice not to have a computer. Well, it's really nice to have one. <laughs> so, so like to be able to have software that you can control it with is pretty awesome. Um, and so I think that uh, I'm not sure if it's competitive with what, and, you know, it doesn't have integration with cameras and so on and so forth. So I, I'm not, not super bullish on it, but it's interesting. I'm glad that somebody else is, is competing in that area of the market. Uh, next question. Yes, on a similar topic, Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas, asks another one about the OC GoStream switcher and wonders if it is uh, being able to stream, notes that it's being able to stream up to three destinations, RTMP. Seems like a cost-effective feature to get some redundancy. What would some alternatives be that are also somewhat cost-effective? Go ahead, Noah. 
So the two that I've used before are restream.io. So you send a single source to it and then it could redistribute that to multiple places. Also, if you have a premium Vimeo or yeah, Vimeo account, you can also do that kind of redistribute redistributing. But as far as like redundancy sake, um, you're still going through a single hardware encoder, right? So it's still a single point of failure. So it could fail at the hardware source or at that single point. So um, if you really want true redundancy, you probably want two separate encoders. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, there's uh, alternatives would be the Roland line. They've been doing it longer than Blackmagic Design and they have T-bars, which is nice. <laughs> yeah. I never use them. Even when I have a T-bar, I don't use a T-bar. So the only time I use T-bar is to go up halfway so that I can do some weird transition where I'm looking at it. But I very rarely actually use it. I think some people do, but I, I just not not a behavior that they I have. They look cool. Yeah, sure. <laughs> anyway, but the uh, I think that uh, the problem, as as was outlined by Noah, is that the, the three destinations doesn't really help you when it's coming out of one encoder. Uh, it helps a little bit. Technically, you want to use both the primary and the backup ingest for something so that it has somewhere to go because you could have a failure inside of the ingest system uh, for a, a CDN, but it's very rare for that to actually happen. Um, you do want to have, generally, you want to try to do, build two parallel pipelines. And the one place you generally don't have any um, you know, uh, parallel systems is your switcher. Oftentimes we have a backup switcher, um, but we don't have a, but it all has to go through there at some point. That's your point of failure. But usually we want to have two separate encoders. This show, for instance, goes through two, two separate encoders um, that go in and then are streamed to individual ingests um, as they, as they go out. So, so those are, um, uh, so I, I think that that's probably, I don't think, and the other problem that you have is that, especially for a small switcher like this, we're going to assume that you're not streaming out of a conference center, you know, like a convention. <laughs> this, is, this is what you stream like little events with. And um, in that environment, you probably don't have a ton of bandwidth. So what you're asking when you do three destinations with RTMP is to use up the small amount of bandwidth you most likely have at a venue um, for three different streams. You're much better off doing something where you're sending it to AWS, sending it to Restream, sending it to something else where you only have one pipe out. If you don't have two encoders and two internet connections, it doesn't really matter. Um, so just send one out and uh, and then be able to, um, uh, th then you split it off somewhere in the cloud. Next question. Next one comes to us from John Preto in Las Vegas here on the panel. And John's solving uh, or coming back with some more information on a problem, I guess, from yesterday's show about Wi-Fi. Can explain. Go, John. Man, I, did I pull my hair out of my head on this one? It turned out to be the routers. It fried all three of my airports. The LAN was working on them. It killed the Wi-Fi on all three. I don't know if lightning hit it or what happened, oh, but it killed that, killed the radios like on all three machines. That and like then lightning. I have a Linksys as a backup. That thing's bricked. So yeah. I'm pulling my hair out of my head. I bought a brand new TP Link six Wi-Fi six. It's running like a champ. And then yeah. and then iOS does some weird things with the password where they keep it stuff in the keychain. And if you're trying to put the same password or change the password for the SSID, it's a nightmare. It's interesting. Yeah, that definitely sounds like you had a lightning strike somewhere in the in the vicinity. Um, and so your most sensitive electronics will be those transmitters. And um, it looks like they got tweaked. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. John, I got a couple of spare airports if you want them because they're not made anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, go ahead, Bill. I think somebody needs to go back and make one of those gigantic uh, Frankenstein-style knife switches so that if the storm's coming in, you just pull the big copper bars away from something and have about a foot and a half gap between there them. That'll fix you. I just saw something. I don't know where I was reading on the web, but the the um, the 
they said button, you know, power buttons, the size of the button or lever tells you how important uh, whatever you're doing is when it comes to voltage. So these really, these really big ones mean you're going to move, you're about to move a lot of voltage um, from one place to another. We had, uh, I worked at a convention, I was at a convention center and they, um, they didn't get the amperage right, um, you know, with the, so there was a, a, a truck that needed, I believe it was 600, 600 amps going through a 400 amp um, pipe uh, cable and it started smoking. <laughs> go, go ahead, uh, Noah. Yeah, I was curious about like what safety protocols and what best practices there are around lightning, you know, with obviously grounding a building and maybe UPSs, but I'm sure there's like limitations to what those can do for something that strong. You know, we... When we were grow, when I grew up, where we had a lot of lightning, and um, you know, obviously there's lots of lightning rods that are around to kind of try to get to absorb that before it hits you. Uh, but a lot of times we unplugged everything on a, on a storm. Like we would pull everything out of the walls and get, you know, to make sure anything that was sensitive, any electronics. I know that my 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 grandfather had, you know built his own transmitters and everything else uh, for ham radio. And uh, everything got unplugged when we had big storms. Like he just pulled everything because he had spent, it wasn't like he'd spent money on it. He had spent hours and hours and hours building these like, these Heath kit 1100 watt trans transmitters um, and uh, and wasn't interested in losing them. So, uh, so yeah, we put, I remember going through his house and pulling everything out. And it was like a thing you did when it rained really. As soon as you saw one bolt of lightning somewhere in the distance, you would start unplugging electronics. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I do exactly the same thing. When a big storm rolled through here, I go under the desk, I pull the two plugs that do the desk, and then I go into the voice booth and pull the one plug that fires all that. If I don't have oh, six inches to a foot of air gap between what's feeding that power, I don't want to deal with it. And technically, I mean, the, I have a, all my stuff, all my electronics are going through a UPS, and the UPS would theoretically protect them from those things. Um, and they and they would from a in a vicinity strike, but if it hits your if it hits your house or something particularly close, it'll fry all the way up through the system. Um, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Henry Engineering, the people who make the audio products, have a thing called a clamp that you uh, apply to your uh, switch box, and it's faster uh, than the lightning. Apparently, when the lightning hits, it clamps it uh, uh, yep, to ground lightning. instantly and protects everything downstream. Lightning's really fast. <laughs> Apparently, it's faster. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Speed of light, maybe. Yeah, they make lightning arresters for ham radio antennas that are designed to shunt the lightning to ground over a very narrow spark gap. Uh, so it jumps that direction rather than going down into your equipment. But um, yeah, that uh, that surge protector and UPS probably is not going to protect you from lightning strike. 10,000 volts is a bit more of a surge. I mean, 100,000 volts is a, is a bit more than, than that lightning protector. I mean, than that surge protector is rated at. Uh, the thing that I always think, I feel, I've told the story before. I worked at a, a electronics uh, company and we used to, we were building these controllers for uh, RSM or MSA, Mind Safety. And um, you'd walk into them and you'd, you know, work on them. I mean, it was like, a, it was, you know, probably 16, 20 feet long, four feet wide. And you'd go in and work on them. And I just remember uh, a, um, one of the guys, and I was like, I was, I think at the time I was 18 years old. I, and and uh, I was just precocious because I had been wiring stuff for a long time. So they let me actually use the soldering iron. And um, otherwise I'd be shipping and receiving. And um, anyway, so... Uh, I looked at him and I said, hey, you might want to put on a, uh, a, it's been, you know, we've had some rain. You might want to put a, uh, a wristband on <laughs> before you go in there. And he's like, oh, I'm just going to go, sh- I'm just going to tighten something. I'm not really working on the electronics. And he went in there and he, his little, his little um, uh, Phillips head 
this little spark just jumped from his Phillips head to the to the board. It was it was probably it was really tiny and it was about an inch long and it did a quarter million dollars of damage in less than a second. <laughs> Like, like it was just like suddenly everything just it just caused created this cascading effect inside the system, and that was his last ten minutes at the at the company, <laughs> like because because the manager watched me tell him watch the eighteen year old tell the twenty six year old not to go in there, and then the twenty six year old ignored him and then killed killed the system, and that was pretty much it. They were like, you can get all your stuff, you're you're, you're done here. So um, anyway, so that so I always, I think about that all the time when I think about static, like just just static is enough to kill your electronics. You just have to, you know, and when I'm working, I'm, I constantly keep everything grounded i'm only, you'll always see me tapping on the chassis because i'll ground the chassis and then i'll just you'll see me tapping on it before i do anything else to, to if i don't have a, 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 wrist, a, a wristband but first thing i got with my son when he started to want to get into this was a wristband and a static mat <laughs> go ahead go ahead uh, courtney yeah one story even uh in the early days of hollywood in the late 80s i was working on an ibm commercial and went on to stage an older older stage uh that uh still had dc on it and uh, the electrician who, you know, set up all of our plugs for us to plug all of our computers into for the commercial uh, just ran an Edison plug box over to the stage box and didn't realize he had hooked it up to 240 volts DC. And uh, nothing fries a transformer better than 240 volts nothing, DC nothing. because it just melts the windings instantly. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Uh, we could probably do a whole second hour on on fun with electricity. That there, we should put that in the list of like a Friday subject is is uh, all the things that we learned about electricity while working, doing production. Or I told a great story yesterday about electric fences. I have, I can probably tell. I could probably do a whole hour on just on electric fences. Uh, next question. John Fultz in Sealings Grove, Pennsylvania. A mid-journey just removed the free plan for images. I'm teaching college students about AI-generated images. What are some attractive free alternatives? Go ahead, John. Yeah, this is a bummer. There's, there's mid-journeys in its own class. Your, your subsequent choices are um, st uh, Stable Diffusion XL, which is a brand new model that just came out about a month ago. Photoshop, if your guys are if you're teaching graphics, Photoshop, you can do generative art in Photoshop and then Dolly. One of those three solutions should should uh, get through the is class for Is crayon AI still a thing? Does it still work? Crayon. It was I like it. a bunch of us um let's see if it's still there. Yes, crayon. Uh, hold on. There was a um there was a one called Crayon AI that when we couldn't get when no one could get Dolly. We all jumped on, um, we all kind of jumped on crayon. Yeah, you're free. Let's see if it still works. Yeah. Um, you might want to try that one. It's, it's, it's not as good, um, but it is, uh, it's got new stuff in it. Interesting. Um, let me just check it out. Anyway, crayon, it's C-R-A-I-Y-O-N.com. The one thing I will say is that I feel like I haven't used it for a little while, but back in the day, it really felt like it did line art better, like logos and stuff like that better than mid-journey, but it's been a, probably a year since I've used Crayon. But we all jumped on it when when Dolly came out and you and you couldn't get it. You couldn't get a you couldn't get invited. You couldn't get in for any price. A lot of us jumped on Crayon to to play with the ideas. And so um that's an, that that's one you might want to try to um I think that it was really it's really interesting. I mean obviously OpenAI has done done fine, but I I really find that the Dolly thing was really a master's course and how not to launch a product <laughs> which is they got everybody excited and then there was incredible amount of pressure that that everyone wanted to, to go somewhere and they all 
you know, started going to Crayon, started going to Midjourney. That's how I got into Midjourney was that Midjourney, like I couldn't get into Dolly, but I could get into Midjourney. And then Midjourney exploded on Dolly's excitement. <laughs> like like it, it, they literally rode Dolly's, um, you know, thing. Now, obviously, OpenA will be fine. <laughs> but Dolly kind of, we don't think about it much anymore. I don't know if you use it much, John, but I, I kind of move past it. Yeah, go, John. So on on, the, on their office hours last week, he talked about they're actually launching, relaunching uh, Midjourney with their web interface. Oh, and interesting. So, oh, yeah. So he says that their their new web interface is going to, and I, I posted this on LinkedIn too, the prompt engineering is dying. He says their new web interface is spectacular. It will be right from their web and not through Midjourney. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, not through Midjourney. Oh, you're not through Discord. Yeah. Yeah. So next question. Next one comes from CJ Koval in down, uh, Downington, Pennsylvania. Follow-up to HDMI over fiber conversation. Having trouble getting the head of the HDMI all the way through the conduit. Thoughts on the attached? And he's got a, looks like a tool. So for those of you who weren't uh, here yesterday, that, this, is, this was a conversation that came up yesterday that, that uh, then I missed the second question that he put in there. But the, the issue is he's got about a 50-foot run um, of, uh, that he wants to be able to run between it. And he was trying to figure out, should he use an Ethernet converter, fiber? What, what are the ways to do that 50-foot run? And I was suggesting just getting an HDMI with fiber. You know, it's a one-way, you know, but, he's having, but what he's following up here is saying the HDMI heads are too big to get through the conduit. So that's the that's the challenge. Go ahead, Noah. Yeah, that's super tough because those HDMI heads are pretty sensitive and obviously they're pretty wide compared to like a fiber, Ethernet, or even copper line. So you could try a, a lubricant for the shaft um, within the conduit. That's probably not going to work because the head is pretty large. So you might have to look at alternatives, like I said, fiber, copper, or Ethernet based, you know, with, with converters on each side. Go ahead, Mark. So there are some uh, fiber cables that have smaller heads, and then you once you pull the cable through the conduit, you snap the uh, the full size head on. Oh, there's a picture. Yeah, that's that's going from a mini hyper. Uh, so basically, it's got a it's a HDMI mini on both ends, and then you're just adding the snapping in the adapter to the full size one on the way through. That's interesting. I've never seen that before. I right, go, ahead, Bill. In my old studio, I actually surface-mounted one-and-a-half-inch plumbing uh, PVC conduit to pull wires through because I didn't want to have the hassle of this. But even with those big tubes, if I tried to add something like an HDMI cable later on in the process, I would almost always snag it. And I got to the point where every time I tried to run a new line, I pulled everything out in a bundle, attached that to the bundle, and pulled the whole bundle back through because it, it always seemed to be some kind of mess. These were... 20, 30, 40 foot runs. And it just, uh, adding stuff with big connectors on it is never a good idea in my opinion. It's just me. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and keep in mind if you're pulling fiber, uh, you know, an old trick is to, to you know, bend the cable double, attach your, your uh, fish line to the center here and pull it this way so that the connectors, the back end of the connector is pulling through. But but I wouldn't do that with an optical cable because a tight bend in a cable is going to break that optical fiber. So I would say the only way to do it is A, run it the first, make it the first cable you run and uh, tie tie the fish string at the base then run it along here and then take some uh, gaffer tape and make a little conical shape and with the uh, pull cable coming out the top end of it. So it makes kind of a little uh, funnel to uh, eliminate the stopping edges of the HDMI cable when you try and pull it. You'll have your best luck trying to pull it if that's the only route you can go. Go ahead, Mitchell. 
Uh, you can also buy a bottle of uh, yellow, and it's got a number associated. It's about yay tall. Uh, it has a consistency of gak, um, and you squeeze it onto the uh, thing, and it's very, very slippery, so that'll help things get through there, but it's nasty. Yeah, the... Um if I were doing this, most likely I would use 22-gauge um, SDI cable. Just don't terminate it. Um, that's the, like all the, I'm trying to see, maybe I don't have one here, but it's it, it's a pretty, I mean, it's about the same thickness as your iPhone charging cable, your lightning cable, about that thick. Um, and 22, it's either 22 or 24. Um, it's pretty thin, but it'll go 50 feet, no problem with 4K. Um, and so, uh, but that's what we use a lot for our, our, our rigs, but I wouldn't terminate it. It's really easy to terminate on the other end. You can get a, I have a mechanical, I mean, I have a machine, machine termination tool, but you can do it by hand too. You can buy these little ones that just let you just spin around and, and pop it off and terminate it on the other side. It'll go through just about anything because it's super thin and it'll move through. And then you're just putting SDI to HDMI on one side and HDMI to SDI on the other. And, um, and I think that you may find that that that's the easiest one. I was thinking about it after yesterday, and I think that that's probably what I would do. It's the simplest conversion that you could do. You wouldn't need, you don't really need fiber at 50 feet, I guess is what I would say. It's a, it's a, I, was, I thought about it a little bit later and just felt like that was a really heavy lift for 50 feet. Um, the SDI will work at 4K, 60, up to about 75 feet at that real thin gauge. And if you get a thicker gauge SDI, which will still probably pull through, you can go 300 feet with it. Um, but uh, um, before, but I don't usually use copper past 150 like 150 feet is usually when i get to 150 feet i start moving over to fiber um, next question next one comes to us from roscoe jones in madison indiana roscoe says since noah is here can we discuss the strengths and weaknesses of tanks and support gear for crews at trade shows do we have a preferred kit for the upcoming coverage and i think and he's talking about ibc well, we have IBC and then we have NAB um, after it. And, you know, Noah was really the pioneer of a lot of our coverage of conferences. And so uh, he's, he, you know, he was one of the very first folks that were doing it. And, and at last year's Cinegear, he had, you know, an incredible setup that was all kind of built out there. Uh, this year at Cinegear, we, we went a little lighter. Um, and then at Seagraph, we went to kind of a heavy backpack, <laughs> so, which Peter Rosado was kind enough to carry around. Um, and so, uh, so go ahead, Noah. What, what do you think are the advantages, disadvantages, or where would you go now? Thanks. Yeah, there's a lot there for sure. I think the, the obvious one, like Alex just outlined, is the weight and the um, kind of the personnel. Because, you know, with a tank, it's a lot more bulky. It's a lot, a lot of other parts. But I kind of made a quick list here. So for the advantages side, you have, you know, two cameras is what we had on the rig, um, which is really nice because you can kind of switch between the two. We have an ATEM mini and a laptop on top as well. So you can um, jump between them. That way, if you're reframing one shot or if something's out of focus, you can quickly switch to the other. So that also minimizes the reframing and the shake that tends to show up on camera when you only have a single camera and you're live. Um, it also creates a stable platform, right? So when Guy was walking around on the floor with us, we were able to wheel around and follow him nicely, which worked out really well. And then um, instead of the weight being on your body or on your back, it's on wheels. Some of the disadvantages, uh, it's larger, obviously. Uh, it costs more money. That, that's the thing is like I own a business and so I was able to you know, supply that gear, but we may not always have that advantage with what we're doing with um, our coverage. And then finally, um, it takes a little bit more... Um, skill set um, operating a multiple camera and a switcher and a laptop compared to just a single camera, you know, once you have it built out. So. And, you know, the, what, what we're doing um, with, uh, C, with NAB is that, you know, of course, we, we have the, 800, the LU800 uh, Live View that has 
for, so we can do multi-camera. So for a bunch of the stuff that we're going to do, we have up to four cameras there. And so we don't have to switch it uh, on site. You know, we're going to be able to switch it remotely. Um, so that that gives us some advantage there. Um, also, we, it looks like, and again, this is all based on, built on the foundation of what NOAA did, what the, the IBC team did, and some of the experiments we did, uh, all, everyone who's shown up in the past, is it looks like NAB is most likely going to, um, you know, partner with us a little closer um, based on the stuff we've done in the past. And so we're going to have some opportunities to have some have more presence um, in New York. And so um, that's going to make it a little easier for us to to move forward. By the way, if you're interested in being on that team, but either on the ground or virtually, you can you'll see that there's a form in the email that goes out as well as in Discord. We'll probably put out another announcement, but we're going to try to close it off about a month ahead of time. So we just know what team we have. Um, but um, but I think that the advantage that we had, <clears throat> you know, I think that you know, at Cinegear, we used, Courtney brought a, a cart that had the big advantage that we had with Courtney's cart was the battery. I mean, the, the cart itself was great, but Courtney had this great battery that really, I mean, I didn't really think about battery management until I got to Seagraph and realized there's just a limit to how long I can go smoothly because I just don't have a battery to, to run it. Um, so we, I am thinking about kind of this mid-ranged version of that of that system or just buying a lot more batteries. I mean, it was one of those things, but it's a lot of batteries. Like you you suddenly realize what your draw is on those. And I'm, I'm, I'm starting to build like this small collection of 99 because I have to, because I'm flying in, I need these, um, uh, these uh, I'm using the small rig 99s. Um, if you go over the 99, then you end up with, you get, you get more battery time, but you also can't fly with it anymore. So um, so anyway, so we're kind of playing around with what those things look like. I still have a vision of like eventually having a, a table that we're shooting at, a tank that we're moving around some things where we're doing kind of a, that's where we do the multi-cam shoot. And then a live view that is potentially still multi-cam, but, but just designed to be much lighter, you know, than, than what we have, you know, otherwise. And so um, the... You know, I don't know if we really needed, I don't know if we really needed to have, I mean, one of the things that makes our system heavy was because we were kind of prepping the build for both the Scorpio, which is, you know, doing the the mics as well as the, as well as the um, wireless and everything else. I think if we said, okay, we're going to do one thing for HDR and 5.1 and one thing for just the regular coverage, that kit gets a lot lighter, you know, like, cause now we just have, you know, wireless transmitters to the, to the, um, uh, to the person. And there's a piece in the front right now, which is a Scorpio, which is pretty heavy. You know, I, the, the big thing when we went to Cinegear is as soon as we have, I put the Scorpio on, I immediately was like, this isn't going to work because the, the strap was too heavy with all the transmitters and receivers and everything else in it. When we, uh, I bought a back brace for it that goes up, up over your back and kind of locks into the Scorpio in three different places or locks into the bag. And I pulled it tight, we pulled it tight and then put it over. And, and I mean, uh, Peter, Peter is uh, is obviously in good shape, so he was able to handle it fairly effectively. But it, it, it does take somebody who can, who's willing to put on a backpack and a front pack to to make it work. Uh, go ahead, Noah. Yeah, there's a lot of brainstorming here that we could talk through. Um, when it comes to the rigs, like there's the tank system where it's a big bulky thing. You know, where if you have intense interviews or really strong interviews, you probably want to throw that tank at a system. And so we could probably all brainstorm and design that and iterate on that a bunch. And then there's kind of like the Scout platform, which is that lighter backpack single camera. So that Scout's more agile and mobile and faster. And then like Alex also mentioned, like we could have a base camp type setup, multi-cam ready to go. So we can bring people to us or have conversations from the show floor, you know, color and play by play, all yeah. that stuff. But lots yeah, of stuff and, and, to think through. 
And I think that, um, and we're trying to work through that for both. I mean, I, the IBC team is kind of running their own their own system there, so we, it's going to be a, a we all get to see what they work on there. Uh, for for NAB, um, you know, I think that the thing that I was also sensitive to, like Central Hall in in Vegas, not necessarily New York, has stairs. So the tank becomes really much more difficult. And so um, stairs are, you know, something that we want to be able to traverse up and down more more easily or less easily. And that's one of the reasons I kind of lean towards wanting to have something a little lighter. Um, I, do, I do think that we also found that the us kind of roaming around with a camera was pretty effective. We're still learning how to do the dance between multiple cameras um, to make that actually work. But um, but I think it, it worked out fairly well. And we're doing some updates to Makana to make it easier, even easier. I was using the, the host view, which a lot of you don't see, but um, which worked out pretty well. But we're going to make some adjustments to how it works. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Depending on the range of the Teradex, it seems that you could put the tank as the uh, base station for it, and you could cover more than one uh, moving Teradex uh, uh, camera system without carrying all the weight around with you to get there. Yeah, I mean, we are... Um it just depends on where we get placed uh, or if if we get space and, and where we place it. That uh, The tank is probably not the place we want to do that. I mean, we could, um, but we also want to look at the, if we get a booth or if we're able to start getting space, we can actually um, put those transmitters centrally located. And some of them are pretty powerful. We could go a long way. I mean, we found that we could, in Cinegear with the Ranger, we were using one of the Teradek Rangers. I mean, we they went down the length of one of the halls, and we were still getting transmission. We had you know, trouble with audio, but not with the video. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Aren't there uh, ramp bypasses in the central hall? I mean, there would almost have to be for wheelchairs, yeah, it's, right? There, there is on on the far side. You know, it's okay. it's mostly that it, it just is. It is when it's congested, it's really congested stairs, so on and so forth. And and you know, it was one of those things that I I uh, I felt like. At the ones where we're using the back, like when we went to to Seagraph, it felt much more fluid as we moved around, like than 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 it did when we were even at Cinegear. At Cinegear, we're kind of making decisions and moving. Now there's but more people and so on and so forth. But there was a fluidity that I think we lost with that. And so um, I think that there, again, I think that as we get bigger and as we, ha- it, it really all of the scales up and down depending on how many people are there. So um, so the uh, but if we scale up, I think we'd end up with probably one of each. Most likely, which is, you know, like you'd have a tank that's kind of building setups. These are like real, like what I would be thinking about with the tank is that we would build like, it's almost like a studio, but at people's booth, you know, like it's really kind of there. The The backpack is really kind of weaving through things. And then the the studio, if we end up with a, something on the ground is, is where we bring people to us. And, and they all have different uses. Like for instance, Bringing people to us makes it easier for us to have HDMI outputs from their laptop or their stuff or whatever because they're they're showing it. And if we coordinate that well, it could be it could be useful. And as you have more of these stations, the big the other big advantage is you're not on any one of them at any given time, all all the time. So you're you're able to do like a base station, the tank, and then a fly pad, you know, then a and then a roaming thing. And it's we're able to keep it pretty tight and cover something, but everyone's getting a rest. You're only hitting each one of them maybe twice an hour. So, you know, every half hour you're coming to one of them. But for the viewers, they get to see a lot. So that's kind of the, the other thing we're kind of – that gives them – that gives the folks at the tank time to get from one thing to that. And we could even say it's doing only a hit every hour. And it's, you know, that way they can get there, they can set up, maybe even put up some lights, check everything out. You know, like they have time to do that while we're doing something else with – you know, because right now what you've seen is us experimenting with lots of pieces of how we're going to cover events. We're not really trying to solve it yet. Um, the goal is that if all goes well, if we keep on doing what we're doing, that next NAB will be the 
like we're going to try to solve this, <laughs> like you know, like and enclose and close the gap. So a lot of these are experimenting with different aspects of that process. Go ahead, Noah. Yeah, I was just going to talk a little bit about the origin. Is like I, I think Alex and I had parallel ideas because when I approached him and said, "Hey, this is what Josh and some of the other of us want to do," and he's like, "Oh, I've been thinking about that for a while," and so that kind of sparked it and jump started it. But I, I have to say, like. Um, there's so many people that have been involved in so many wonderful ways to iterate and grow in what we've been doing. So it's n- it's not all me. And at this point, it's been mostly not me for the last three or four yeah. events. So And I love, I love, I mean, I'm doing some of these, but I, what I love, for instance, is that the IBC team is going to take a completely different route. And by the way, the IBC team will be doing a after hours um, session uh, for the two hours before office hours on Friday the 15th, so 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And then they're taking over office hours um, on that Saturday morning, uh, 7 to 9 um, Pacific Standard Time. And that's going to be on the 16th, um, that Saturday. It's coming up in a week and a half or so. So stay tuned for that. And I love the fact that they're going to do something completely different than what we're doing um, because we get to learn from from what they're how they approach it. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I think the, the idea of, the, of, like we had on Senegar as a... Uh, large amperage lead acid battery, which you can probably ship on an airline. I, I would check there. You can definitely ship it uh, ahead of time of yeah. FedEx or something, but um, uh, I think you can carry it a lead acid, seal lead acid batteries of 33 amps or 45 amps, you know, a pretty good sized battery um, and have an inverter on it. That way it lets you set up chargers on the tank so that if you have like little custom Canon batteries for cameras or Sony batteries, you can swap them out, put some on charge that you have with you at the tank. And if you have shore power back at a booth somewhere, that'd be a handy place to recharge batteries. So if you have a central location where you can shuttle your your used batteries back to be recharged, you wouldn't have to carry as many batteries with you all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Chris? Courtney, is there an advantage to using lead acid over, say, some technology from the 21st century? Like yeah, they don't you know, catch fire. They something. don't catch fire and explode like lithium ions do. They they don't ignite and the you can't extinguish fire. them. It's the <laughs> lack of fire in an airplane that it, makes them advantageous. I, I think that the thing that that you I think you could definitely um I, I think you could use lead acid. I probably lean towards kind of a probably either a Jackery or new, new Power or something like that that I think will I mean it'd be interesting to test the two of them, but the the convenience of and what's the um uh, I know Keenan has his one that he's working he, on. What, what's so he, he uses the, the technology he uses, I believe it's called LifePo or LifePro. Yeah, um, LifePo, I think. And what's nice about it, they're, they're like 200 amp batteries. They're about the size, I don't know, they're, I don't know. It's, it's a very large car battery. Right. It's all Bluetooth controllable, so you can monitor, you know, how much your draw is. You can yeah. you can see, you know, length of time we left, and, and that's involved. all. That you should absolutely get Keenan involved. You yeah. could put him in charge of just the just the the power yeah. management. Right. But um, he uses those. He has one mounted in his trailer. In his, he has this little six by. Four, four by four by eight, four by six something uh, cargo, cargo trailer, and it it manages his power for his um, fridge, his right. Starlink, and and anything else. And he he plugs that thing in. He you know he'll leave the house charged on a Friday afternoon, and come home you know three days later, and it's still it's still running. 
Yeah, the, we'd, I had a friend in Africa. A lot of times, the power goes up and down a little bit. And I had a friend who had a he had a whole room full of car batteries that he he had put together. It's like fifty of them, and it could run the entire print shop if if, if we lost if 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 they lost power. Uh-huh. It wasn't I don't long enough. I think it was I don't it was a couple hours you know for the whole building. Um, it was all just computers. They just wanted to make sure they didn't. I don't think they could run the. They had a uh, pretty big print print printer down below. I don't think they could run that, but they could run the. Uh, you know, all the Macs, you know, to keep them running. So they keep on doing desktop publishing back then. Um, go ahead, Noah. Yeah. And thinking about like the power systems that we might need, obviously camera batteries. So the larger cameras tend to have bigger batteries, like the FS5s or FX6s can do like a six hour battery. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have those little like 88 watt hour batteries that helps power miscellaneous things on the cart, like the M1 Mac and the ATEM. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't have lights yet. So it's like, trying to think through all those pieces and how they would fit into like um, a bigger battery well, system or individual. And a lot of these lights have, a lot of the lights that I have, like the NAND lights that I'm that, that does this like background that you see here, mm-hmm. that's got a V-mount on the back of it. So you can put, you know, you can, um, you know, you can charge them with, with bigger things if we wanted sure. to. Um, but I'd probably, yeah, I think I'd probably get some pretty beefy batteries for that. But I do think that if I went to it, if I have lights, I'm probably going to have a, a tank kind of structure. And if I do that, then I'm going to put something big underneath, you know, that we can move, that that we can power everything from. Um, It was like, again, it was, I realized very quickly that we weren't going to be able to do this with that. I mean, like we couldn't do long hits. That's why I think that if we have something on the ground and we have, even if we have just a lot of smaller things, but batteries become this thing you think about all the time. (laughs) It's like, it's like, you know, it's and, and I just keep on getting more of those. The 99 amp hour ones are the ones that are the most you can fly with. And I'm using the small rig ones because they have a great little thing on the outside that tells me what's going on. They also have two barrel connectors, one USB-C, one USB-A, D-tap. And then if you put it onto the little, um, if you slap it onto their little mount that they make, you got a whole other set of those. And so you have this in, in one little bag, I can power a whole bunch of stuff that's, you know, relatively useful. So yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. You can skip the inverter if you want to, because a number of companies, including Condor Blue, make uh, power distribution boxes that have D-tap and the barrel connectors and the different voltages that different cameras require, um, and has all that stuff on it. It's just a little distribution box that has all the outputs and gazentas. Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of there's we're we're probably going to get really good at this as we keep going. <laughs> you know, I think we're going to do got IBC, as I said, coming up. Then ne- the next month we have, it's, it's both NAB and um, uh, AES, uh, AES, AES. Is it AES or AEC? AES, AES, Audio Engineering Society. But I think it's, a, I can't remember what it's AEC. AES, but I'm Audio saying, Engineering. I, I don't know. If, is that what they call the conference, though, or is they call it the Audio Engineering Conference, or is this AES still? AES Conference. Um, anyway, so uh, so we have those two um, that will be right next to each other, and then um, there is a couple of things we're looking at possibly in November, December, um, but then C- CES will be another one. And then NAM, uh, will be after that in February. And then there's a chance we might cover South by, um, so as people kind of put it together and then there's an eclipse. Just want to make, make sure everyone knows that we talked about it over the weekend, April 8th, there's an eclipse. We are going to cover that somewhere. <laughs> so we're going to figure that out. And then we'll have uh, NAB after that. Next question. On the eclipse, I uh, talked to my cousin. He has a whole uh, lakefront uh, facility in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is right under mm-hmm. the uh, the Passover. So if that's interesting, we have a place with a lake and boats. Let's, let's and- take a look at how long the eclipse is at that time. 
And again, yeah, because I, I want to go to kind of maximum, you know, or or a couple of different places. And so I think we'd probably want to use something in Erie. That'd be great because I think what what I'd like to do is try to cover it along the way. We know that Doug um, uh, is Ferguson. at Doug Ferguson is in um, Indiana, uh, Indiana, and it goes right over his. And then we have lots of people in Dallas and Austin. Um, and so there, there, I think there's a couple opportunities for us to maybe cover it over time and see it in, in two or three different places um, to kind of extend that coverage. Um, so um, keep, pretty, keep in mind as you pick locations, you really want to be on the line of totality. There's yeah. a big swath that yeah. you can experience eclipsiness, mm -hmm. but you which you really <laughs> want it. If, if, you if you're going to make a big deal out of it, you mm -hmm. got to be on the line of totality it it makes a big difference to real like eclipse nerds oh. uh it, it doesn't it it it's not impressive at all when you're not like it was it's like not impressive not impressive holy smokes not impressive not impressive <laughs> like just as someone who's, who's sat under we shot the last one for nat geo and and it was it was like uh, it's okay. And then like, you're like, oh my gosh, the whole world changed. And then it went well. And having right multiple locations can be super advantageous because I went to Southern Australia for an eclipse in 2000. It was cloudy. There was, a, it was, I saw the eclipse where the sun was setting into the Southern Sea. Mm -hmm. It was going, the totality was only going to be 32 seconds. Mm -hmm. And there was a 32 second cloud that covered right. it. Yeah, for exactly that much. It, it was like no, no, no. Oh, 32 seconds later, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, and it's passed. this one. This one, fortunately, is about four and a half minutes. It looks like so. It's yeah. No, this is a this is a once gonna in be a, a lifetime deal. eclipse. Yeah, it hits like I think thirteen states or nine yeah. states or something like that. I mean, we don't get another one like this possibly, as you said. I mean, like to have it this have the totality. This is the best one of the century. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Especially in the States. Yeah. It Good repeats course. in 2038, by the way. Yeah, but but not, but I don't think it goes in the same, uh, I, don't think it, I don't think the totality is as long. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was just going to say, to check the weather at the locations for that, that period of the year, that day, it was in April, uh, because April is very showery in some of those states, especially Texas, and the likelihood of having rain or, or cloud yeah. cover is great during yeah, those so, days so check so we're, the weather we're, we're letting you know we're going to probably build a team you'll probably see a call for action soon where we build a team for the eclipse team we'll start doing all the research trying to figure it out but i do think covering in a couple different states probably makes sense that, you know it, we may get maybe cloudy the whole time we'll never know but uh it's worth trying because it's going to be amazing i reached out to a couple who own a little tiny rv park that's right on the totality in oh, outside fine. of indiana and they had like you know a bunch of campsites and mm -hmm. I, I told him, I said, look, if it, I'd be willing to rent out the whole campsite and just and just sub out the the, the spaces. But that's what you're going to want to look for. You're going to want to yeah. look for I, something where 20, people can. In 2017, I, I, uh, when we, after we did the last one, I almost bought land in Texas. Like, just I'm just going to buy a chunk of land, like just buy two, one acre, I've two acres. I've looked into it as well. Yeah, just because it, it, it passes right outside of Waco, Texas. So a lot of people like, you know, Chip yeah. and Joanna. Hmm. Anyway, all right, we'll, we'll see, what, see what we can do. Next question. Carl Bortkus in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma says, Chris, as a woodworker, how do you set up your shop when you want to share what you're doing on a stream to other people? How do you keep things from getting too dusty, damaged, or catching on fire? I really want to start being able to do this. Go ahead, Chris. So um, in, an, in a nutshell, dusty, 
damaged and catching on fire, I'm a complete failure at all of those things. If you look here, you can see this is just a little pole that I've mounted on the edge of my um, uh, bench. And this is just a, a cell phone up there. This was, and, and the, the fire, I'm sure Carl is, is uh, poking fun at me. This was a, a happened about a year ago where I was uh, using my router. And if you're not familiar with this piece of equipment here, this is the most dangerous tool in most people's wood shops. Um, you're literally holding a very, a, like a 7,000 RPM motor in your hand. And if it cuts in, if it bites into the wood, it's super dangerous. And on this particular night, and I'm going to scan forward here, you could see it's starting to get a little uh, smoky in here. What had happened was I was using the wrong type of bit for the type of plunge cut that I was doing. I was using the vacuum to suck up and clean up all the sawdust into my shop vac, which is right down here. And you could see the smoke here. It's getting bad. Um, I was so focused on what I was doing. I was not, I, I didn't notice it. And I'm going to jump forward like another minute here and I'm still working. I have no idea. Look how bad it is. I am totally clueless. Eventually here I am still, I'm still working. This is ridiculous. Yes, I do need a smoke detector out there. Um, eventually what happened was my eyes started to <laughs> be affected by the amount of smoke. And um, and I'm still cutting here. And what's happening is little hot embers are coming into the shop vac down here. And I'm continuing to suck them up. I'm still working. Now here I go. It's like, oh, my eyes are like, what's wrong with my eyes? This is really bad. I rub my eyes. And then I look and I'm like, oh, gee. And then I, I start, I unplug the power, I get rid of my uh, dust collector. You could see the smoke pouring out of this uh, shop vac on the exhaust port. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's funny now, but I mean, this was, this was moments from burning down my house, I think. And uh, I open up the garage door, take it outside, evacuate the air from the, the room. And uh, um, I sat in that room for another couple of hours afterwards, just to make sure something didn't, you know, didn't get thrown. <laughs> Here I am <laughs> uh, blowing all the smoke out, but um, super, super frightening. Uh, but in terms of like streaming, you know, we've had people that do streaming projects and they're super fancy, really well together. This is just me sharing with friends, you know, progress of the things that I'm working on for them. I just use my phone, it's fine. That's why everyone when I, we were in the wood shop when I was in high school. That there was like there was I, I when I saw your video, you 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 always thought it was silly, but there was always this thing that there was a fire extinguisher within fifteen feet of every place. There was like these fire extinguishers on these poles everywhere, and I did. We always thought it was kind of absurd to have that many. We make fun of it, and when I saw Chris's thing, I could see oh. 10 or 15 feet would make a big difference. <laughs> here, here, <laughs> watch grab the, one. <laughs> you can see here, I come back in from the, the driveway, that black expanse mm -hmm. to the left is the driveway. And I can't remember if anybody was even watching me, but I, I was streaming to our own private Zoom room. Yeah. Uh, and I come in and I, here we go. It's like, hey, hey, you guys. <laughs> anyway, I was... <laughs> Hope you guys are okay. And I realized that nobody was recording it, stuff, and that's when I pulled this footage off my Nest Cam. You can see the oh. the bug up there. Um, yeah, it was sad. Well, it's close. It was good. <laughs> not 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 as sad as it could have been. So, um, uh, next question. 
Darren Sorello in Dallas, Texas. Up next, I recently upgraded to my new MacBook Pro M2, and I'd like to use it with two 27-inch monitors. Could you please recommend a suitable dock for this setup? I Go ahead, Mark. So OWC has a number of good docks. This is one of them that uh, has the ability to use USB-A, uh, Thunderbolt USB-C, and it even has a network port on it. So it may be a little bit expensive, but it's replacing a lot of things. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I agree. The OWC is, is one of the ways to go. This this one's a, a little bit cheaper and less ports. Uh, has uh, It has two HDMIs, which you need, and some USB-A and the... Uh, networking and it depends on whether or not you need uh if you need uh like a uh, sd card interface this came from a uh, article in pc magazine on the best macbook docking stations for 2023 so you might check out that article because it shows many of them and depending upon your needs and what you need to interface it to you might choose something different go ahead chris yeah, this gets back to the dock versus hub which is better i think i think in general dock is more powered um, and probably a, a better tool. So, uh, but I, Courtney, are you certain that the HDMI outputs of the one that you showed are those over 1080p? I believe if you're they going are. to a 27 inch 4K. monitor, yeah. So, if you're going to a 27 inch monitor, you very well in a Mac world, you very well may be on a 5K monitor. That's what I use. Uh, it does. And, it does say supporting uh, 4K displays and gigabit okay. Ethernet port, which means it'll almost do a 5K. Uh, 4K yeah. might be fine. It, it might be fine. I know that Alex likes 1080 displays. Uh, my primary displays are always 5K, but um, you definitely look into that as you're buying something. Yeah, the other one that I'm that I so OWC is mostly what I've used up until now. The other one that that I saw over the weekend, looking at something else that looks kind of interesting, that I want to do some more research and I want to compare it with the OWC is the Sonnet Tech, um, Sonnet Tech uh, uh, Echo Eleven Thunderbolt Four dock, and it is specced to support two five K monitors as well as um, you know a lot of other peripherals, and it's you know powered. It's a little bit more expensive. I think it's four or five hundred dollars, but it's it is a uh, it looks like a bit of a beast. And I, I want to do a comparison directly with the top of the line OWC because I, I know that my studio is maxed out. Oh, most of my computers are all maxed out all the time with their co connections. And so so I, you know, having something that would really break a lot of things out would be really useful for me. Um, next question. Tony Mobley's up next in Noonan, Georgia. I'm new to cutting the cord. How do I get ABC content? It is locked on Apple TV looking for a local cable surface, service. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, with, uh, with Alex's favorite, YouTube TV. I have YouTube TV as a streaming service. I cut the cord to my spectrum, which is why Apple TV has disappeared. I mean, which is why uh, ABC has disappeared from your Apple TV right now, because Spectrum, your provider, uh, if you have Spectrum uh, app, uh, it's been removed until they argue while they're over arguing over cable carriage fees, which will probably come to a, a conclusion soon. But the problem is Apple carry Apple owns the right. I mean, excuse me, ABC, uh, Disney owns the right to ESPN. And a lot of people are upset as ESPN is disappearing from their spectrum cable and charter cable uh, system. So uh, YouTube, it's still going strong. I checked my ESPN it was working great last night. So uh, it is not subject to the blackout. Yeah, and um, the U YouTube TV is is great. The other thing is that um, 
one thing that was that David Brady recommended a while ago that I have that I've tested, I don't use it as much as I probably should because I have YouTube TV, but I did test and it works well, is Silicon Dust, Silicon Dust uh, HD Home Run. So basically this take, this is a, this is a tuner. It's, an, it's for your antenna. It'll plug in and then it delivers it via IP. <laughs> so you can now watch it. Um, and so uh, you can just open up a window and look at it. And so the, um, but they make it and that's going to, you know, remember that your local TV station is still broadcasting on an antenna. So if you really want that, you just need something to convert that. And Silicon Dust HD Home Run is one of the things you can use for that. Uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Kyle, Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois. Kyle says, how do you set up cameras for a five-person roundtable panel? I'm brainstorming ideas for different angles uh, versus the five people in a line on a stage talking to each other in profile. Now go ahead, Noah. So The Hollywood Reporter does some excellent content on this. I've seen some of Alex's stuff too, which is awesome. So, um, But basically you kind of have two options. One is kind of like a semicircle where you're shooting towards people. So you have like a 180 degree line that you're shooting towards, right? Kind of almost like a panel, but slightly rounded. The other option is a little tougher. It's in the round, right? But you're shooting through the gaps of people. Um, and it's a little bit harder to light, a little bit harder to set up, but those are the two ways I've seen. And I've done the second way more than the first. Yeah, so the um, we got into this. So what, what Noah, just to outline a little bit of what Noah is talking about there, is um, one of the things that one way to do it is to, as Noah said, is we'll build something that's like this and you'll have it like this and you have folks on the outside like this. And then one of the things that we've done with this is oftentimes have some kind of, um, you know, it's a high and wide that kind of gets everything. And then we might have two PTZ cameras down here. This one is at this one is actually trained on the cross here, here, and here, and then this one, the other one, is really here, here, and here. Um, and so they, it's a little tricky to get it just right. And sometimes we stack these on top of each other. So we'll put them, um, we'll put them actually on a rig right above each other. And so that they're, they're spinning the up opposite direction, but they, they each cover those um, as they work. So you end up with this kind of feeling like everybody, you got whatever you want behind them. Now, obviously, this is not designed, I don't design much for the audience, like an in-room audience, I kind of feel like they're just filler. <laughs> so I just, I just, I just call it seat kills. Like, like I'm, you just don't put anyone that they can't see there. Um, so, so anyway, um, but that's one way to do that kind of in the round there if you have the space. Um, and this has been very effective because it, you just feel like you're there. You know, people are just there. You're able to cut back and forth. The wide shot is your. It's a really wide, oftentimes like a 14 millimeter, like it's almost a fisheye. Um, and you can see that wide that Chris Fenwick is, is, is cutting to. That's the other direction that we go outside in. Um, so this is what we did for um, the uh, Final Cut user group. Now, we built that table for the Final Cut user group. So that, that had Wacom tablets. Everyone shared the same computer as well as um, – so they, they, um, they share the same computer. And I think I can actually draw over top of that. Leave that up. Let me see if I can do that. No, don't come back to me. Um, I'll leave it alone. Yeah, I'm going to pin Chris to my second screen. You, you can cut to me in just a second. Just let me uh, move something around and do this over here. Let's see if I can pull this off. It's a, uh, do, 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 I know exactly. Do, do. Um, so there's Bill. Bill's in the yeah, shot. Yeah, I think so. Um, so let's, uh, so here you can now. Sorry, that was me. Bill. Uh, 
Let's try that. Alex there we go. For a moment. So, so anyway, so what you have here is in this case up here, we're using what's called an, a, an air star. Um, but, you know, so the air star, it makes it actually relatively easy to light because we don't have to worry about it. It's just like a big globe. I use that because it really, what I felt like is it really felt like it was, um, it felt like you're at a, like a dining room table. It had this kind of soft, you know, look to it that I, that I really liked. Now there's some, in, in some cases we had up, up here, we had some hair lights and stuff like that occasionally, but a lot of times we didn't, there's a, it's a pretty big space. So we had probably a solid 15 to 20 feet from each person to the background, which we're using just black um, around it. And then we built this table and the way the table was built was really, you know, all these Wacom tablets all went into a cent We're all sharing the same monitor from the same computer. Um, and then we also had, and the reason we did that is so that we could do this, right? The, the, um, I could draw anybody, anybody on any station could draw over top of it. Um, and then, Anyway, so we built this all out. Now, this is before we realized that we really needed to do um, only five. <laughs> but, but anyway, but the, the big advantage here. So there's a five. There's the five shot, right. And so, so the big advantage here was each camera could basically split, split the, the, the gaps. So everybody could have basically a, a straight on shot from any different angle that was there. Um, and so that way you had this straight on when they're looking at other people and it really feels like you are sitting at the table, except you're sitting in different parts of the table at any given time. And, um, and so obviously this one was a little less because as we kept on building these tables, we built like six of these tables and finally got tired of it. And we we're like, don't put so much wood into it. So anyway, so uh, until we figure it out, um, anyway, so, um, but this allowed us to have these straight on shots with everybody all the way around. And it was super, you know, like every one of these has got a clear shot. You're not going anyone's back of their head. If you go to an even number, it's harder. But if you do an odd number, um, it gets easier. Now, we this is, you can see back here, this is before we have operators back there doing that. Um, the real way to do this is PTZs, you know, the P, you know, like, because it also is just less distracting. You have a a person here will have a tendency to grab that eye line or a person here, this person's going to see them. The PTZs just become completely invisible because they're barely moving. You're just doing reframes. Um, and so, so this was a, um, it, my pref, my strong preference is five to seven people or three to three to seven, three to nine people, but always, but remember you're, you're giving everybody a camera and then you have a, then you can pull the camera out. This is my shot, but that camera was preset to go to a wide shot. So you can see everybody, at any given time. The one thing that I wanted to do um, that we haven't done yet is to really, uh, if you think about the table here and you have the people that are going around like this, um, the, the one that we started building, we tested it, but never used it in a show was to build um, a arm that goes out and hangs. And then at first we were going to build a rail, but it causes too much vibration. So the, you see the, the camera bouncing a little bit, unless you're spending a lot of money on it. Um, and uh, the, what we wanted to do is have an arm swinging out here and let it swing around us very, very slowly so that, so that we can um, make that actually work. So anyway, that was the, that was what we, uh, th those are the, th those, that's kind of the, the process that we've kind of built out. And uh, yeah, Noah, Noah, real quick, we're going to end at the top. Have of the you end. seen the orbit with Josh? Yo, he, he I, has one does of those he do that? cameras. Yeah. Uh, you should yeah. check it out. Orbit. Yeah, no. oh, the orbit. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. That's, that's a, uh, and, and he, and is he spinning it from a central arm? Is that how that's working? Yes. Yeah. He's got a custom motor and you can put an extension like a speed rail on it to help bring it out wider than the central point oh, okay. of the arm. So, okay. Very good. Good stuff. 
Yeah, no, we'll, so we'll we'll definitely uh, I'll check that out. Um, and and it's, it's a camera rig. It's not a it's not a podcast. It's a it's the the, the orbit is the camera rig, right? Or yeah, the orbit fine? is the machine. Yeah, I have one in my garage, but I still have yet to test it. So we'll we'll talk. <laughs> All right. That sounds good. Uh, coming up this week, of course, we've got brainstorming graphics uh, tomorrow. So we're going to be talking about what do we want to talk about um, on, on th- Tuesday and also brainstorming on Friday for the Friday subjects, tech and infrastructure. Uh, David Schumann is going to be talking about mixing station on Wednesday. And then the the uh, the big team, our high tech team is here back here to talk about HDR, future of LUTs and con- conversion um, on Thursday. We're really excited about that. And now we're going to jump into the second hour. Well, we did that very well. Sorry, this is this is even even on the days where we're doing two hours of Q and A, we're trying to train our system. Me, uh, train uh, everyone on the back end, or learn together on how to do that. Uh, so you see the little fade out. It doesn't mean anything when we go back to second hours, but it we have to. We're building that muscle, and that was a good muscle because we're not getting good at it. Because I saw Mitch do, give me this time thing, and I was like, oh. And then I looked at the time, and I was like, oh, now I gotta now I gotta make a recovery. Um, Noah's new to this, but we're. We're trying to build, we're getting into kind of a more precise uh, setup. Anyway, let's go to the next question. John Rocket Nichols in Concord, California is up next. He says, I'm exploring distributing power through a patch panel for a fly kit. I'm anxious because the websites don't make it easy to understand the Neutrik PowerCon system. Does the panel have any recommendations on where to start? Go ahead, Noah. Yeah, so I built a few fly kits, um, so I'll show you my rigs here. So basically, instead of the Neutrik system, I've used a cyber power unit that has power on the front and the back. Um, so what you described does sound interesting. I, I just don't know if, if, depending on how much power you're running through your box, if it's worth going up to that power con system. Uh, but having plugs on the inside and the outside allow you, obviously, to plug stuff within the box. And then if you need extra things plugged in, you can plug it in on the outside as well. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. You know, the problem with the Neutrix is that, is that connector, the custom connector for their Paracon stuff, you know, is that's what it looks like if you have some like kind of like a Speakon connector. Uh, for distributing power, of course, you know, that's not standard on AC for almost any, any equipment out there. So you have to have adapters to go to standard Edison plugs. Uh, I think for, for you know, just routing stuff inside uh, your fly, fly packs for uh, power to all the stuff that... I mean, I've built some, and unfortunately, every single little box has to have its own power supply, and it's usually AC only, uh, wall wart, which is trouble to plug in. I found these, uh, uh, this is from uh, Triplight, that makes these with these little dongles coming out of it, and it has a single power strip, it's rack mount, and so you can have, what was it, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16 outputs, uh, and each one can take a wall ward on it if you want. And that's the problem you run into with these power strips inside uh, that are rack mount. Uh, is if you have four wall warts, it takes up, you know, 50% of your outlets because they overlap the uh, the plugs. But this solves that problem. It also has this feature of having a little cover over the power switch so you don't accidentally shut everything off in your, uh, in your case. So for routing stuff, AC to stuff inside the case, I'd use that. For outside the case, you know, you could use those Nutric connectors, but then you've got to carry all those adapters with you. Yeah, the by the way, you can buy six inch, uh, I guess what we call pigtails, pigtails. that are just, um, you know, they are just C13 or they can be C13 or they can be C15 to C6, C14 or whatever. So they are C15 to C16 anyway, but the, um, uh, but they're just taking that Edison and just giving it 
six inches of flexibility and I have, I don't know, 20 or 30 of them in a box. <laughs> like you just, you stick them into things that are like, oh, I can't figure that out. Um, I do have a tendency when I use those to use gaff tape with them on wall warts. So I tend to gaff them to the wall wart and then stick them in because otherwise I'm afraid they're going to pop out. Next question. Kick Maori in Morris, Illinois is up next. Enjoyed the NDI session and would like and would welcome more. Along those lines, I'd like to bring NDI audio into the soundboard for live mixing. Would it be possible to go from NDI audio to XLR and would like to see NDI audio built into a soundboard? Yeah, I don't think we I don't think NDI is built into a soundboard. Um, I think that the what you'd have to figure out is what you're going to use to de-embed from the NDI and deliver it out. And I think that the in the I think that one of the challenges you're going to have is latency as you start to pull this stuff out. If if you're mixing and matching it with anything that is, um, if you're mixing and matching with anything that's not going through NDI, you're just going to have a lot of different latency issues between the two. Um, but you're trying to figure out what kind of software or hardware that would de-embed audio from the from that signal. Go ahead, Noah. It makes me think, you know, with Dante, it's basically the, in. well, I guess Dante came before NDI in that sense, but like Dante is for audio, right? So I wonder if there's some sort of bridge between Dante and, and NDI. And, and Mickey pointed out the bird dog Dante NDI bridge to Dante and then from Dante to an analog device. So that's that's how you'd probably get it there. So you're looking for the NDI bridge from bird dog. Uh, good catch, Mickey. Next question. Alexander Knight in Port Colloquium, British Columbia, Canada. And I probably got that wrong. I, I set up my Melee Quieter 3 this week, and I'm quite happy with it and may buy another one. With multiples and considering the heat generated by these passively cooled devices, is there a stand I could get to stack these side by side? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. They do have a Kensington lock on them, so that just on this end here, if you stack it, you could only stack it on... This is the only side, the side with the Kensington lock is the only one that has uh, nothing on it. In other words, has no connections on it because there's connectors coming in. This one's actually connected right now to, to my system. So I have to get enough slack on So if you want to stack them, I would say find something that could hold it on the Kensington lock side vertically that it would just slot into vertically. And because of the, the ribs that are designed to dissipate the heat are vertically oriented, the airflow, which heat always travels up, the airflow would tend to go up and take heat away from them this way. Uh, so I'd mount them vertically like this with all your outputs coming out the back. And uh, then you have your, uh, your uh, USB connectors on the top. And your heat flow would be vertically here. You have a power button in the front. That would be the best way to put them. Uh, maybe 3D print something that they just slot into that uh, takes about a, the bottom half inch into a slot. Design a couple of slots and sit next to each other with a base. Real easy to do on your uh, Tinkercad on your 3D printer, which I suggest you get. Go ahead, Chris. Courtney, is it true that you were second runner-up to Vanna White for spinning the letters? Because that was a, a lovely flourish <laughs> that you did there. It's all on the wrist. Um, yeah, I just so they, don't look good in a ball gown. Really. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, I would not put those within. I mean, having two of them, I would not put two of the two of them on top of each other, next to each other. I'd give them an, at least an inch or two between the two, um, you know, to make that work. Um, but I think that you, they, they, I think they could be within a, within a, an inch or so. But that's about it. Um, next question. 
Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut. Has anyone used Node.js to update the live streaming output settings on a Blackmagic ATEM mini switcher? Go ahead, John. Reach out for Jonas Dattel in uh, Discord. He's uh, He writes in Node, and he has worked with the SDK for the, for the ATEM mini, so I would reach out for Jonas. And if you're... Um, I guess Node, yeah. It should, it should work. Yeah. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Bet Brelo in Appleton, Wisconsin. Brett says, besides simple playback, what creative use cases have you encountered where the Melee or B-Link PC form factor was an ideal solution? Uh, I'm using it as the, you know, the Alex listener um, that uh, is on, is in um, After Hours, which is occasionally there. I'm still working on getting it to work with my monitors, um, mostly just with the number of monitors and switching and so on and so forth. But, um, but anyway, so I, uh, so I'm working with it there to, to, to kind of um, uh, be able to have it just be always on. It's not very expensive to do. We've also used them for comms. So we, we put um, installed Unity on those. And then it's just like this tiny little box. And you have that along with um, your headset, along with um, a stream deck, and you end up with a, a pretty good little comms box. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, what I do is I always travel with uh, either a Melee uh, stick PC or a Quantum Access stick PC in my laptop bag. And you get to a hotel just plug it in with easily, easily have a little short dongle that goes from HDMI to one of the HDMI inputs on your hotel TV and you can turn your hotel TV into a large screen computer monitor and then carry along a, a small wireless uh, keyboard like this. And you can do all of your streams, have access to all your streaming software, your YouTube TV, everything else uh, over Wi-Fi as long as they have good Wi-Fi in the hotel. And they also have a Ethernet plug on the end of them. So if you have access to Ethernet plug, you can even plug them in. So they're great for doing that when traveling uh, to give you a large screen TV. Is I mean, a large screen PC anywhere there's a large screen TV. I carry a Apple TV to do that. <laughs> it's the same same kind of thing, which is you just plug it in. I keep it up to date with all but my the apps. the Apple TV won't run computer programs. So if you want yeah, to run Excel spreadsheets or do some do some actual work, you know. <laughs> well, I can actually take my computer and just share it to the Apple TV. So okay. I can, you know, the, the Apple can, TV just looks like another monitor. So when you plug it in, it becomes a monitor to everything else that you have on the Apple platform. So I can open my laptop and just say, this is your other screen and it just, or mirror of this screen, and it just immediately pops up. So yeah, you can, it doesn't work on its own, but it's a good extension of that. Um, but usually if I'm, I don't work, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm when I'm in the hotel room on my laptop or, or I'm uh, sleeping. <laughs> Next question. Next question comes from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach. What are the primary software tools and workflow for a big-budget movie like Blue Beetle? How do the teams deliver, share, and manage their assets, and what's used for the final edit and render? Go ahead, Noah. So I can answer part of this question um, about the workflow. So at least on set, we start with a DIT, a digital imaging technician who collects the data from the different cameras, organizes it and backs it up onto multiple hard drives. So their job is to basically be that container and bring everything in. From there, um, that goes to post-production. But another part of this tool is um, the PR production report. So you have camera reports, audio reports, continuity from the script supervisor, all that gets put into a PR and also needs to get passed to post-production. So once those dailies go to post, they take it from there and back it up and put it in their system. And that's where I'll hand it off to somebody else to take. 
Yeah, and from once it gets in there, it's obviously the, a lot of companies have their own proprietary solutions to actually manage the manage that connection of how they're putting where they're putting everything and how they're managing all those assets in in space. Um, you know, obviously, you know, a, a large feature film. This is weeks of meetings <laughs> of exactly you know, and it's not just it's not just the uh, where are they going to go, but it's naming conventions and processes and who's accountable for what and how it's going to work because you don't have just the assets that you shot. You have your texture maps, you have your lighting, your your project files, your you know, all those things. And so it is really important to land those well as you kind of move through that. So there's a lot of meetings just figuring that out. And again, um, then you have like shared assets. Where do the rendered assets go? How do those rendered assets get picked up? Um, in a lot, in a lot of cases for a large production, the thing you have to remember is that they're also getting done. Um, the people who are working on them are, and Stu talked about this a little bit last week. If you haven't seen Stu's interview, it was great. But in big productions, you may have people working on things. They never, the person working on the animation is not the person rendering it or the person doing the texture maps or the person doing the lighting. So in a very large production, they're doing their part. They're, they might be doing animation, but when they, what happens is the render system stands up and, and grabs the latest geometry with the latest textures, the latest lighting, the latest animations and pushes it all through the system. And so it's a, it's a you know, it, it can be a very complex system that's kind of, that, and a lot of times it, it makes for funny dailies because when I was doing it, when I was working on it 25 years ago, we would get the dailies are just automatically pushed onto a, onto a, a, a tape, um, Betacam, I think. Um, and it was just, it would just be pushed out there for us to view on dailies. And the funny thing is, is that you didn't know uh, what happened. And so if the physics sims didn't work, we had a particular, Jar Jar was particularly funny because his ears they were a simulation. And a lot of times they'd stand up or they'd go out or they'd start swinging around. And, and they, so all the other animation looked completely normal except his ears were going everywhere. And that was pretty common. Um, next, but you just, because you don't know until you see it on the way out. Next question. Next question comes to us from Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, uh, Coquitlam, B.C., Canada. I decided to put Companion on separate computers and discovered that I had to manually export my profile settings and config to get it on the other machine. I need a way to auto-backup data to iCloud Drive from this Mealy PC. Script it or plug-in? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. I haven't used too many plugins. I usually script my backups, uh, and I use just a uh, plain old xcopy, which is a DOS command, uh, and it'll run on your Melee computer. Uh, you may have to map. I'm not sure about iCloud, whether it gives you a local drive, something that appears as a local drive on your machine. Uh, you could use then xcopy to copy to that local drive, or you may have to map that uh, iCloud drive, network drive, to as a local drive. And then you can just write a script in uh, in Notepad and then save it as a BAT file, .bat file, batch file, and have it uh, put that in your startup folder, and it'll execute every time you, sorry about the glitch, it'll execute every time you uh, start your uh, Melee machine. It'll back up those uh, profile files uh, to the iCloud or to whatever backup you want to have them done. And that's what I do. And I suggest, and there's a lot of the switches, if you type help, X copy in a command line window, it'll show you all the switches that you can put on that command line to have it back up everything after, you know, a certain date over the last, you know, only copy the newer files, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Delete the old files or keep the old files. There's tons of switches in that X copy. Uh, it'll even copy folders and subfolders. So. Next question. Next question comes to us from Noah Sargent in Fullerton, California, here on the panel. Alex, can you share a link to your larger SDI tool? I have a hand one, but haven't seen or used a mechanical one. 
Mark, I think you have one of these, right? You have, do you have one? I do have one. Here's the website, uh, coastaltoolcabletools.com. And Coastal is C-O-A-S-T-E-L. And the unit is actually this size right here. Oh, Oh, you can't see see me. Hang on, hang on. The unit is this size right here. So handheld, you stick the cable in. You press the little button and it cuts it into three different elements that are all stripped perfectly well. And then and you the, just put the sleeve over it and the cap on it and crimp it. Yeah, it, it is. Um, I have to admit that after you're used to using that, it's really hard to go back. Like it's 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 a um, it's such a luxury and it it's expensive. I think that one's like seven or eight hundred dollars. Um, the I think the the one that we use and you can get one with a foot pedal, which turns out to be when you're doing lots of them, turns out to be kind of nice. And then they make one that also stands, you know, kind of stands alone. Um, you when you work with Coastal, they'll you just tell them what your what cable you're using or what cables you're using. They can send you the fittings that are already pre, pre-calibrated for your cable, um, and it'll score them just right. It's really, really important because if you, if you don't get that setting just perfect, even with, your, with, your, with, a, with a finger tool, you can obviously cut the wire or cut the shielding or cut other. So these things just, they, it is, it, it, you know, we're talking about, you know, thousands of inches, you know, like really, really small, um, especially on a 24 gauge or 20, uh, 22 gauge uh, wire. It's really the difference between cutting your cable and, and and properly stripping it are very very close, and so it does it perfectly every single time. And you just push it in and let it let it do its thing. Um, if you're making lots of like if you're making a couple cables here and there, I think that the 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 using the little manual one is fine. If you're going to make a lot of them, like we make sometimes we make hundreds at a time, um, it is the key to the operation. Um, you know, it just really, it, it probably doubles or triples the speed at which you can build those cables. Um, and it's just more accurate. You get better. Anyway, it's, it's great. Um, yeah, coastal cable, coastaltools.com. And, um, I, uh, Marty Brennis introduced me to it maybe 10 years ago and I really had, a, then I, and I have to admit, I just barely know how to use the manual one because I always, you know, I won't really dive into doing a lot of STI cables without the, without the machine. Uh, I, I, I admit that I'm, I'm a little, uh. Uh, crippled in that way that I don't I don't really do it any other way. So, uh, next question. Brett Bailu, Will Appleton, Wisconsin. I have a Nanook Pelican style case with a solid foam block. What are the best tools or techniques for cutting and shaping the foam to snugly fit your gear and avoid a mess? I was thinking heat knife, but I don't want to melt the foam. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the hot wire knife is what uh, a lot of uh, case manufacturers use these days. They're using lasers. If you got some lasers. If you've got a CNC laser, that's a good way to go. But you know what I used to use all the time is a Black & Decker electric knife for carving turkey. Uh, it works really well, oscillating knife. Uh, and if you don't have that, just look in the in the pantry and see if you just have a bread knife. Because a good bread knife is long. It has a very fine serrated edge sometimes, or a very sharp edge, and it'll cut through that foam nicely. Uh so that's what I use. I just outline it with a Sharpie and then use the bread knife or the Black & Decker to carve out those pieces. Good, Bill. 
So three stages for me. The first is the toothpick stage. Put the equipment down, use toothpicks to define the outline in it, particularly if you're not using foam cubes where you can be more precise about the outline of it. You want to be a little inside that because it's better to have a piece of equipment go in a little bit firmly rather than uh, flatly. And if I don't have anything else, a pack of single-edge razor blades and then an X-Acto knife set that gives you a variety of tools, you can do this successfully very carefully with that rig it just take your time this is not you know this is you're going to get one chance and if you uh if you don't get the little carve outs right the first time you got to buy new foam and start over and that can be expensive have someone do it for you <laughs> like, like, like i'm just gonna tell you like you can, you, if you're in a rush you can do a little pick and pluck and everything else but there's there is a website we covered this a little bit i don't know if we covered it for the show but i think we did an after hours mycasebuilder.com and um it's kind of magical like and it costs you a little bit more money but there's money slash time slash whatever and you can have a case just done that it just is you know you got to think through it a little bit longer so to really make sure you know what you need they have most things already figured out for you if you have most normal things um and they'll just cut it out and they'll label it and do all the things for you and it feels it feels great and especially if anyone is ever going to see it so you know like the big thing that you know we talk about a little bit is Production is a confidence game <laughs> and uh, people feeling, you know, your partners, other other people doing stuff. When you show up with everything kind of pre-scored and pre-handled and with little labels and everything else, people make decisions whether you like it or not. People make decisions about how good you are at what you do and, and how organized you are and everything else. And and it's worth, I mean, I've, pucked, I've picked a lot of puck of, of Pluck cable. It's really hard to say. It's hard to say. That'll be my new warm up. But um, (laughs) but uh, I have and and I I would not do it again. Like if if I know what I'm going to use in that case over and over and over again. Now if I'm just adjusting here and there, I I would. But if I know what I'm going to do, I would just go to my case builder and just build it. Um, Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, there's another company that doesn't get talked about in our industry much, but it's called Kaizen Foam. And it's by a company called FastCap, I think, owned, bought out Kaizen. And Kaizen is like the way pick and pluck should have been made. Um, essentially, it is, let me see if I can do this. Uh, it's many very, very thin layers so that as you go deeper, you can, you can decide how deep you need to go um, with your stuff. And it, it cuts very well. It doesn't have the same properties as, And it's you know, thin the, enough that you could cut it with a laser printer, with a laser cutter, right? Like you could have a, if it's, you know, less, for foam, if it's less than half an inch, you could probably just put it under a laser. You, 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 you may be able to. I, I've never seen anybody do that. Usually people just do it with an X-Acto knife. They also sell like a little kit, you know, if you buy some of it. And, and in, for some types of cases, they already have, presets to drop into a case. I believe they have like a 1510 insert and they have, um, they make uh, Kaizen inserts for the uh, Milwaukee packout systems. So you can say, oh, I have this packout as a boop, drop it in and then you start going. But uh, I've, I've never actually used it, but I've watched many, fascinated by it, watched many videos of people like, you know, designing their How stuff. And they, How do you spell Kaizen? K-A-I-Z-E-N. Kaizen. Excellent. Next question. 
Craig Kadoke, Toronto, Canada, with F1, Formula One, using more in-helmet cameras, custom-made for Formula One. How hard is it to shade them for the different visor tinting? F1 car cameras as a second hour, perhaps? Oh, I know someone who might be able to talk to us about that, but I still don't think we can talk about it in public. We've had some folks from F1 on After Hours talking about it. Um, you know, it just depends on what kind of camera they have there. A lot of those cameras actually shade pretty well. Um, they have, you know, these little lipstick cameras have a fair bit of control over, especially brightness, because that's really the thing that's going to be there is to open up their exposure and close it. Go ahead, Chris. There's a certain point where the point of view that the camera gives you uh, completely forgives <laughs> so, some of the the nuances like oh, i think we need to raise the black level bias in the blue channel it's like but, dude you're inside but, the dude's helmet but the, the 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 reality is a lot of the lipstick cameras the marshals and everything else do have a fair bit of control in them so it's actually not out of the question to be able to make some basic exposure you won't be able to you're not going to be able to match it to a chart through their visor, but you are going to be able to. You could probably get pretty close to it. And I, I haven't really looked at it that much, but we'll, we'll get all the drivers' closer. helmets and you line them up in front of your what, what is it? Chrome and Dumont charts. That's when you also yeah. In the land of absurd, we're going to uh, need your production. helmet for the next two hours. Yeah, Thank exactly. You. <laughs> next question. Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut. I just bought and have been testing an Avermedia 2 Plus HDMI to USB converter to bring in the output of an A10 Mini into OBS on a PC. It seems to work well. Are there any gotchas or better alternatives to this before I recommend it to my customer? You know, I the um, I wouldn't consider typically... Uh, the Aver Media is kind of like the standard one that I would use to go to USB. Um, they're not, it's not so much that they're, it's not good, it's that it it, it doesn't, um, their stuff in the past just hasn't lasted that long um, for, for, for us. But these are, these all look newer than the ones that I've gotten in the past from them. So it could work fine. Um, these are two, it looks like they're all USB 2, so I, I don't know what you're, um, which ones you're looking at here. And I, I'd have to look at the exact model. Uh, a lot of gamers use them. Um, they seem to, I think that they, they, they could be fine. Uh, so, but, but those aren't the ones that I've used in the past for production. We've had a little bit of um, trouble uh, with, with those. So um, I think that a lot of folks use the Blackmagic products um, to do that as well as AJA has the UTAP. And go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I've, I've, been having a problem and there's been a problem recently with some pcs uh with the usb output out of the atem uh doing something to the usb bus and it shows up as a timing glitch uh about halfway down the frame about every 15 minutes uh mm -hmm. it's a it's a buffer issue it's a driver issue they'll probably mm -hmm. get it nailed down but you might run into that if you're going into obs and it's probably has to do with the usb bus getting overflowed interesting yeah well this is this is actually um going from i guess the hdmi from the a10 mini into obs on a pc so it's the it's using the hdmi output so it may not be the same problem that you'd have with the a10 right, right but it's coming in over the usb bus uh, as usb 2 stream and it has to do with the usb processing of that video okay. usb over usb you mean the avermedia might have that problem yeah anything that comes in as a webcam over right. usb2 <laughs> next question noah Sargent, fullerton california in here on the panel today for custom molded in-ear monitors how often do you refresh or get new ones i've had mine for five plus years and i'm noticing the fit is not as comfortable 
Well, I think we change over time. So I think that's part of the challenge where our bodies are slowly moving around. Five years is probably a long time. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, one uh, one mystery of life is that uh, as you get older, your ears continue to grow with the rest of your body stops growing at a certain point, and your ears keep getting bigger. So you may have to recast them and get new ones about every 10 years or so. Yeah, the uh, uh, I gave up on them, to be honest. I just felt like I never really got a fit that I liked. I've, I've had a couple molds. And I just found that I I have ones that are just that fit my ears really tightly, um, and I just didn't need them. You know, maybe I would if I if I use them as a musician or something like that. But I just I had a couple of them done, and and I just found the plastic to be a little hard, and never quite fit perfectly, which made them uncomfortable. So yeah. next question, Brett Below, Appleton, Wisconsin. What's the brand of swinging arm that Alex uses for his Wacom tablet? Would this arm likely support a Cintiq 16 with a normal downward pressure when drawing? Yeah, I've I've had it do that the 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 sixteen. I think that it's the it's the it's the mount that's a little bit. It's not so much the arm itself. The arm is a Hawan Hawanu 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 uh, arm. It's it's made typically for monitors, and um and so it, I what I did is I took uh, there's a um it's, uh, every time I do this I spill my tea move my tea over I literally every time I do talk about this arm I spill my tea so I'm just moving all my tea to a safe place so I don't have to do that I at least you know at least <laughs> I'm not falling into the hole again expect so, a daily question about your monitor arm now <laughs> yeah exactly dang it so what I have here is the, the couple things here this um what I did here is I actually attached uh, this. The Stream Deck is actually attached to the to the Wacom tablet, so I can change my colors and stuff like that with the Stream Deck there. So that's there. And then this part of the arm is a Vivo. It's it's the Hawanu um, arm. These are about eighty bucks. They're not. There's two arms, and they attach to your table. And then this is a Vivo mount. That's a Visa mount. So this part here is a Visa mount. Um, that ha- that is adjustable, so you can kind of open. That's kind of hard. It's a little stiff without the weight, but you can o- pull this open and shut. So it's like a, just a vice, but it's a visa mount for tablets and so on and so forth. And so I just put that into into there, and then I push it down, and it, it goes into there. And that's how it's – and it just kind of when, – when it's got the weight, it kind of floats nicely here. So I can it, – it's got enough weight that it'll just kind of move to wherever I want it to. Um, it'll definitely work with the 16 because I have a 16 and that's what I used to use. Um, I, uh, the 16, I don't, it's funny is, is that the, the 16 is actually harder to use with this because the connector is more funky. Um, the Wacom one, which is a, or the Wacom one, which is, uh, half the price actually, it doesn't have as many buttons on the side, but it has just a US one USB connector. It's a slightly modified USB connector, USB-C connector that goes into the top here, um, into this here. And that's the only cable. And it's just a lot more convenient to work with. Um, and, um, anyway, so that's the, that's, that's what I use there. Works great. Um, my best setup so far, <laughs> you know, as far as being able to grab onto it and be able to move it out of the way and then pull it back in. It's, it's nice. And then I, there's a little, if I'm smart, there's a little place for my pen that goes on top of the Wacom one that I keep it. Try, I try to keep it there. If you ever see me wandering around trying to find it, it means I set it down somewhere. Uh, next question. James Fossling in Minneapolis, Minnesota, is Amplify, cap A-M-P-L-I, cap F, lowercase I, Amplify, a more home-friendly version of Ubiquity hardware? 
It is a home version from Ubiquity Hardware. It is not friendly and I would not use it again. I have it. So I can tell you from experience of someone who bought it and haven't had time to, you know, just or haven't committed the funds to it. I keep on spending money on office hours instead of <laughs> redoing my network. Um, but uh, if uh, uh, I would not do it again. Like it's it's pain. It, it's, it's not the mesh network that it builds is not particularly useful. Um, and, uh, I'm, you know, ramping up at some point in the fall to replace it with ubiquity. I, I, I don't mind the ubiquity brand, but I wouldn't recommend the amplify. Uh, next question. Matt L in Oakland. Is there a way to do multiple lower thirds as contestant introductions on a live stream that is using an ATEM mini pro and a live use solo, no computer in the pipeline? Go ahead, Noah. If you have those lower thirds pre-built, I would look into an iPad with MixEffect Pro because you can switch between the different graphics that way. But if you have to build on site, um, you probably still need a computer somehow. Good recording. Yeah, if you don't have a computer, that makes it awfully tough. I was going to say you could use PowerPoint and line up all your, uh, you know, use one input of the ATEM Mini uh, with a PowerPoint feed into it and just have individual slides for each lower third and then ping between whichever slide you're going to for the next introduction, the next introduction, so on. You could line them up in PowerPoint. The other thing is if you had the A10 Mini Extreme, you have the six uh, the six um, macro buttons, and then you can build a macro uh, for the A10 Mini Extreme so that whenever you take input one for contestant one, it puts the lower third in there for them. And input two loads the lower third for number two, et cetera. And you just build a macro for each one and use those six macro buttons for switching. And that way you bring your, or at least switching your introductions. And then that way you could automatically bring in your lower thirds. But that isn't available on the Tim Mini unless you use the software control switcher on a PC somewhere. Good, Bill. I was wondering if Tuomo's SPX graphics, because they're all web-based, would help. But without a computer, I was trying to figure out whether there's a way to get in other than putting it on some little Mac Mini or something like that. Uh, to me, it was getting it out of the character generator and getting into a web thing, but I'm not quite sure how to plumb that. Yeah, I feel like there's got to be, I guess there isn't a way to cycle through. <laughs> yeah. There's not a way to cycle through the media pool, right? Without Not without uh, macros. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you could do macros. You could do macros. So you could know so that... So with the macro buttons, you can do it, but not without the macro buttons. So you have to build your macro buttons to do that, yeah. That would be the way that, that you'd have to do it. But the how, it, how many... But there aren't any macro buttons on the Mini, right? The Mini Pro? Um, I'm looking at it. I don't nope, see any. only on the Extreme, I think. And, and I'd like to outline again, there are so many buttons on that Pro that we don't use. <laughs> if You know, like if, if we were just able to attach those buttons, it, it would... It's probably one of the few. There's a couple things I've been thinking about with the ATEM. Like I was trying to think, of like, where would they go now? Like, what would they do that would be better? And the defining the buttons, being able to define, you don't have to change what they say on the front, but being able to redefine what every button does would be revolutionary. The other thing would be to have um, the ability to do a, basically a um, shading and so on and so forth, even if it was just loading a LUT for every input, but being able to have basic proc amps on every input would be great. But even if it was just loading a lot, um, I think would be great because then you could match all your cameras in the switcher um, as opposed to at the camera end. Uh, go ahead, Chris. I think the thing, the question I'd ask you, Matt, is why why is there this, what I'm going to call an artificial limitation of no computer? It seems like every answer is like, but if you had a, and uh, maybe adding a computer to your setup would, 
would solve a whole lot of problems. And, and I do think that you'd be able to do it with just a, just an iPad, you know, just a, a, a small, you know, look for, you know, entry level iPad would, I wouldn't use the mini iPad, but I, the smart, first one that's kind of full size 9.7 or whatever would be enough to with, with mix effect pro to do most of the work that you needed to do. And you could have it kind of just sitting there. So it'd be relatively portable and easy. I think that probably the sensitivity there, my guess is with a live view solo and the mini is the complexity to set it up. And, um, I think that you, it'd be, worth it to have at least an iPad there. Next question. Next one comes from Douglas Carmichael, and he asks, when you measure the SPL of a live show, do you usually measure at front of house or at multiple average points within the venue? Uh, when we've done this, when I've done it in the past, I try to do it in multiple points. You want to know what, what it's like everywhere. And mostly what I'm worried about is near the speakers, is it at a dangerous level for the folks that are there? So, you know, for an extended period of time, what are they going to be exposed to? Um, and, you know, and then you make a decision about where that is. That's why oftentimes we like to try to get the speakers up and away from the audience, at least for the kind of events that I work on. Um, but, you know, you want to, I mean, oftentimes I'm trying to keep um, that number under 85. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. It's my experience times where I've had to check level is I'm going to check it at the location that it will allow me to pass the inspection. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it, you know, I, I think I, I'll take I think, a picture of it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that I, um, I have definitely become as someone who has to pay attention to my hearing a lot, I've definitely become, um, uh, more sensitive to actually paying attention to it, you know? And so if I think something's particularly loud or, or soft, I have a tendency to pull my, I found that, you know, we tested it against some pretty high end, uh, tools. And I found that my iPhone turned upside down and kind of pointed out where it needs to be is plus or minus one or two dB from the calibration tools that, we, that we've used. Uh, I was kind of amazed by, by that, that it was as accurate as, as it is. And it's, it's a pretty easy way to just kind of go up like this. I, I wouldn't, you know, if you're just looking for what's happening there. Um, and again, it's mostly that I feel my, I find it, I find it uncomfortable, a lot of different things uncomfortable at about 85. So it's, it's less of a, can I get away with it? It's more like, am I going to be comfortable listening to this for a while? Um, and so I, and I've noticed that I used to, I don't know, I, th I think I used to have thicker skin, but I don't like it consistently over 85 now. Um, next question. Next one comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What impact will the $699 Lenovo Legion go with Windows 11, an 8.8-inch QHD Plus screen, and an AMD Ryzen Z1 Extreme chip and detachable controllers available in October have on the laptop market? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Probably very little. This thing is really designed as a gaming machine uh, because it has these... Uh, it's a mini PC with detachable uh, controllers on the side for gaming. And that's really what it's designed for. And that's really its main application. It doesn't come with a QWERTY keyboard or mouse. You'd have to add those, I think, on your own if you're going to use it as a laptop PC. But it's really designed for a portable gaming. So it lets, opens up the whole world of streaming gaming and PC-type gaming. Since so it's running Windows 11, it'll run any PC game. And so it looks pretty powerful. But uh, I don't know what the battery life is on it. Next question. Mitchell Hill, Wilmington, Delaware. Amazon's Project Cooper, K-U-I-P-E-R, Kuiper, is an initiative to increase global broadband access through a constellation of 3,236 satellites in low Earth orbit. How do you think it will compete with Elon's Starlink? Good, Noah. Simple answer is pro it probably won't. Um, I'll try to get into this quickly, but basically Blue Origin doesn't have uh, a readily maintenance, you know, regular launching system yet. So 
for Amazon to launch these satellites into space, they'll have to probably use SpaceX Falcon 9 or their their system, um, which means they're probably paying more to launch those satellites into space. Um, currently, there's about 5,000 Starlinks in orbit, and there's zero of these Project Cooper <laughs> satellites in orbit. So um, SpaceX is also launching about 20 of the satellites into space every month, right? So there's probably some sort of backlog or waiting list to do that. But even for them to get those satellites into orbit, like the 3000, it's it's probably going to take them years to get there. And they don't have a proven system to do that yet. Go ahead, Chris. I believe it's the Kuiper, Kuiper belt, right? Um, yeah, I think, and Elon's goal is to get, I just read this last night, is to have like 42,000 satellites. And I have a question for somebody who might know, uh, my sister-in-law uh, said that, oh, wow, did you see it? it? It was interesting. She said, we saw the Starlink. <laughs> she said the Starlink. I don't, I don't think she realized it was a huge uh, 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 mesh of them. But I've seen many photos that look like Morse code, like dots across the sky. And apparently there's a point where the reflection hits. Are the satellites that close together? It, it, when they're launched, they are. So they, they launch that way and then they slowly spread out. So that's that's how that you're, you're seeing them after they've been. If you see a line of them, that's after they've been deployed. So that's you know. And then they slowly they slowly that's get what to I position. thought. And yeah. as I started looking at photos, it didn't seem that these coincided with the launch. And maybe I'm, I'm just reading it wrong. My understanding, uh, you know, and I, we probably bring someone and talk about it. My understanding is that they they can stay there for quite some time before they're you know before they're put they into really place. Spread out. Yeah, before okay. they really spread out. So they can, you know, it takes a little while to, you know, it's not like you'll see them the next day. It could be weeks or months that they're in that configuration before they move out. So um, I don't think I don't think it necessarily directly coincides. But it's, it's, a, a, it's an astonishing project when you think about it. Yeah, I, you know, I have a hot, I have one. I gave it to my parents because they, they need it more than I do. <laughs> so, so anyway, so the, uh, uh, and in my, my location, I couldn't see enough of the sky to make it work. And in their location, they can. And so um, it's revolutionized. I mean, it's a hundred times faster than what they had before. So, um, uh, but the, I. Um, and you have to see the, the northern sky, you have northern to see a lot of the sky. <laughs> A big okay. chunk of the sky. You have to see like 80, 90% of the sky. trees that affected you? Yeah, for me, it's, I'm on a hill and trees, and I just don't have a place that doesn't, that I have a place that's way down below me that potentially could work, but that's pretty far away from my house. Um, and so I just decided it wasn't sustainable to do that. Um, and so- Do you think it would, it, it's getting better as they keep deploying yeah, more satellites? Yeah, that's the whole thing is that you, as more and more satellites go up, you'll need less and less of the sky to stay stable. But even my parents, it drops like 40 seconds every hour you know like there's yeah. just a time when there's no bandwidth um and so uh and i had that about every 20 30 minutes and i was like well i can't do what i want to do with it which is have it as a backup sure. streamer sure. Um, because of that and so that's been the that's been the challenge there um the uh so I, you know i think that it's good the hard part is is that you know good you know the, good enough can oftentimes blunt the ability to get what we really need which is for us to be really you know, for I, I'm I'm having a bunch of conversations with this uh, with other people. Mark and I were talking about it yesterday, and and um, and I was talking to one of my friends who has an ISP for you know small for rural rural U.S. Um, and small towns. 
uh, there is an incredible opportunity right now to be growing and to, to you know, to, to have people moving into it. There's people who are moving out of the big cities and looking for places. And one of the big, big thing that stops them is good internet. Um, and the problem is, is that, and it's not just that it affects how kids learn, it affects how systems run, it affects, you know, again, people's employability somewhere else. And, you know, the 10 megs, of, the, the, what they call broadband, the government is, is calling broadband 25 down and, and three up is not, a, is not appropriate. You know, it's, 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 it's an insult to even say that that's going to be enough. And, and so the, the issue is, is that what we really should be talking about is glass to the house, you know, and, and the problem is, is that Starlink makes that harder because people will say, oh, it's good enough. You know, I get, I get some better bandwidth, but glass to the house means that when we need one gig, we have it. When we need 10 gigs, we have it. When we need 40 gigs, we have it. You know, like we can keep growing what goes to the house based on what's necessary. And it's, you know, and I think that we need to think about it as a utility. And I don't say that lightly. I'm not a big, like, hey, let's turn everything into a utility kind of person. But, you know, the, 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 our telecommunications companies have failed us <laughs> to make money, you know. And, um, and, and if they were doing great, like Apple does great, and I'm like, oh, just let them do their thing. But telecommunications companies have ruined ruined what we're doing <laughs> and they need, you know, and they've, they've, they've ceded their, uh, right to keep on doing, doing what they're doing, in my opinion. Um, next question. John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Best Buy charges $30 to recycle an LCD TV. What do you do with unusable or broken gear? Go, Bill. I've been lucky. I've lived in municipalities that always takes care of it. Now, Arizona was surprisingly good at this. I wasn't expecting them to be, but they did it like twice a year. They would come through and you could take any of that stuff, throw it in your car, take it to a central recycling thing. And the city, I think in these cases, Phoenix in that case, or Scottsdale, would take care of it. California is way better. Uh, At least every two months, there's a recycling drop-off point. Usually it's at the post office or a municipal building of some kind, and they take care of that. So I think it depends on where you live. Uh, It really feels good because there's so much e-waste out there. To get it into a responsible organization that can deal with it properly um, just always has made me feel good. So I've been lucky in two places. The municipal people have done a good job on it. Good, Courtney. Yeah, look in your neighborhood for a Goodwill store. And I've been using them for recycling because uh, they will, even if it's broken, they might have some people, they employ people to go through all the electronic submissions. And if they work, they try and get them working again and put them back for sale again and put them back into the market. If they don't work, they have a responsible e-waste recycling uh, that does uh, a green recycling and uh, um they're cognizant of discarded electronics. So they accept non-working electronics as well as working electronics. So check for goodwill. Yeah. And in California, you actually pay for it up front. So there's a, there's a tax that you pay when you buy everything that you buy. And so there are e-waste services and e-waste and they're, they're making money on that. What you paid in, they get paid to, to manage it on the way out. So what California does, they spun it forward. So you can find e-waste in California. In other areas, you may have to pay for it. Um, But there are a lot of e-waste folks that will take care of that. But, but in California, you pay every time you buy something with electronics in it to, to get rid of it. Uh, Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. Would there be any compression limiters in a desktop form factor similar to this unit? And he's got a Doctron unit listed there. Go ahead, Bill. 
Yeah, there probably are. I will tell you 90% of the compression and limiting that I see happening now is virtual because uh, most of the decent desktop units allow you to buy scads of compressors and limiters that are uh, run on DSPs on your desktop. So I think the market is getting tighter and tighter. Plus, there's the circumstance that if you compress and limit in real life on the input side, you can't get rid of it. Why most of us now are trying to record clean and then apply compression or limiting afterwards, because if we get it wrong, we can take it off and redo it better. But I'm sure you can find them if you look for them. Just be very careful and try to be gentle with your use of them, because once it's in there, you can't get it out. Next question. Next question comes from Ronnie Hofsoy in Tromso, Norway. What would the viewers of Office Hours want us to take a closer look at while roaming the floors of the IBC booths in Amsterdam next weekend? I, you know, I think that one thing that I'm, I'm really interested in um, is uh, what Blackmagic might release. I think that IBC oftentimes, unlike other things, other places, IBC oftentimes tends to be a place they do release um, uh, new products. And so I would uh, check out IBC and see what, what, what Blackmagic is going to release. Also, there's a lot of things that are very specific. It, there's companies that don't go to NAB that go to IBC. And I think that there's, it's, it's really fun to, to see what those look like. A lot of them are the, some of the smaller booths. Um, there's some really cool, um, there is a Czechoslovakian, no, just a Czech, not Czechoslovakian, um, uh, I don't want to say Czech, but it's not, Czech Republic, um, uh, that they have a Dante-based comm system that's pretty cool um, that, I, that you never see in the United States. Um, and then the, um, there is also a, um, there's lots of little little mic covers and all kinds of other things, and, but 10 to 20 foot booths are the kind of companies that don't go to both. And so um, I would highly recommend checking those out. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Darren Sorello in Dallas, Texas. I'm wondering if any of the Mac users on the panel are running antivirus software. And if so, what do you recommend? Not really. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I was going to say exactly the same thing. Not really. I haven't looked at it in years. There are some out there, and I'm not saying that Mac is in an entirely virus-free program, but I will say also that Apple has an extremely robust, when they identify that there's something that affects the Mac operating system, they tend to jump on it super fast and they send patches out to mean that it will not get into your system and do that. So uh, because of that, I haven't had external virus software on any of my machines in the last 15 years. I haven't had a problem. Next question. Graham, sent, uh, Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland. I've moved my home office to a different room, which has nothing but hard walls and furniture. For acoustic treatment, the polyester panel looks smarter than foam. But is there a significant difference in performance? Go ahead, Noah. So when it comes to thinness or, you know, you're talking about smaller material, you're working against physics here. And so one of the uh, underlining principles we got to think about is like sound absorption. So the larger the frequency, the lower the um, pitch of that frequency, right? The bigger the sound wave is, and it's harder for thinner materials to absorb that. Um, so those things that you, the polyester kits and the, you know, thin foam that you see on Amazon, it's it's not going to be able to absorb uh, very low frequencies. Uh, if you're doing human speech, I would still recommend at least like a two inch thick material to really absorb stuff. I would treat your room with carpet and fill it, like you said, with furniture. Obviously, couches and clothing helps to absorb sounds and bounce and that kind of stuff. But you have your primary reflection, 
So from your source, from your mouth, you're hitting the wall that's directly in front of you, right? That first reflection, you know, you want to set as your primary. But um, basically, the name of the game is physics. At the end of the day, you're trying to absorb that extra uh, noise that's created off of those bounces. Next question. Next question comes from me in San Diego, and it's really kind of as a much a comment as it is anything. When it comes to content creators, there were few who matched Jimmy Buffett, who just passed away. Just a note of appreciation for a performer who always felt more like a friend. And I just wanted to note for a moment, this guy became a billionaire by doing it himself from a troubadour style individual performer all the way to owning multiple lines, writing novels. Uh, he just had an extraordinary career. We've lost... I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say one of the greatest artists of all time, but I think in terms of an effective communicator, defining an audience and serving it well through decades, I don't think there are a few people who did it better than Jimmy did. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, a lot of people didn't realize that he was a writer. Uh, he wrote several novels. He's written screenplays. He was also a pilot and also a sailor, <laughs> as, as most of his songs uh, depict. And he never took himself too seriously, which was a great thing about Jimmy Buffett. I think uh, I had a friend who was uh, one of his backup singers with him for like 30 years. So he was very dedicated to his band and uh, and quite an entrepreneur, a good songwriter, too. Always wrote stories that were interesting in his songs. There were ballads with uh, that told a story, and I really liked that about his music. Yeah, <laughs> he just seemed to have a really good time. I, I, remember, I read some, something over the weekend where he said, I guess he wrote for a Rolling Stone magazine when he first got, he was first getting started, and he said that was the last uh, adult job I had. <laughs> After that, it was just him just having a good time. I was like, well done. Well played. Uh, next he wrote year. a line in one of his signs, my occupational hazard being my occupation's just not around. That's always <laughs> resonated with me. I'm interested in so many things that getting I, a job in one just didn't seem like the right thing to do. You know, I was, uh, um, there. Were, he was playing in Denver, I don't know, years ago, 30 years ago or something like that. And it was at the, uh, some. I can't remember what the amphitheater is, but it's like a big open amphitheater. And by then I had worked in the music industry for a long time. We were catering kind of the VIP area, but I just understood how to get in and out of things, you know, after working on doing, you know, working in radio. And uh, so I just took I, a couple of us, we just walked in and I just showed them like how to look, look like, you know what you're doing. And we just walked into the, into the open, you know, the general admission area and sat on the lawn. And it was just such an amazing party. Like it was just so much fun. Like it was just, everyone was having a good time. Um, it was little stinky <laughs> and and uh everyone was having a lot of skunk um but it was everyone was having a grand old time and just having it was just it's one of my most enjoyable I, you know i i know the songs that we all know i don't know all the songs i just know the the, the 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 major one so it wasn't like i knew all the songs but it was just such an it was such a relaxing saturday afternoon <laughs> like it was just so like you're just playing great music and everyone's in a good mood and everyone's just having a good time and it wasn't particularly intense and it was just he, he really did that well uh next question Douglas Carmichael's up next. KDDI in Japan offers 10 gigabit symmetrical fiber. I have oh, did I? I? Yeah, try I'm it. sorry. Uh, Eduardo Augustine, Panama, Pennsylvania, uh, Panama, Panama, the country. How is the Stream Deck attached to the Wacom tablet? Sorry about that. Yeah, no, yeah, I only know because I set up for the <laughs> so this little plate. Uh, this little plate here. Um, these are, uh, and they are. It's it's uh, very high tech here. Uh, this is uh, this is the flat. The, the very expensive, $17, uh, the flat straight brace brackets. Um, I, they're just random brackets. I just did bracket or brace or something like that. 
um, they don't particularly fit for it or anything else. And all I did was I put a bunch of two-sided um, Velcro onto one part of it so that I could stick it to the back of the Wacom tablet and it sticks out. And um, again, to show that um, here, now see, now I have to messing with it. See, that, by the way, is not T because I, I moved it. Anyway, um, uh, so anyway, uh, but this bracket is just kind of just attached to the back of this. Uh, and I, you know, it's just Velcro here and then Velcro here. And that's all. I, I, I'll build something someday, but, but I was like, uh, th that's good enough for right now. So anyway, that's, that's all it is. $17, uh, four pack flat straight brace brackets by U Lifestar. <laughs> I don't know who that is. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. KDDI in Japan offers 10-bit symmetrical fiber internet service to residential and or small business users. Would there be any practical use cases for those people at, for those speeds at the consumer level? Go ahead, Noah. The catch with this question is the consumer level part of it. Um, I think for the average person, they may not see the same thing that we see, but um, I, I will tell a quick story. I have been struggling to get fiber internet uh, in the place I'm in now for a number of years. And then uh, about three months ago, four months ago, I finally got the opportunity to go to fiber. Um, and I went for the highest speed, which was a 4.7 gigabit symmetrical um, speed. And it changed my life for uh, practically speaking, because I have servers and other things that, so for, so obviously for like techs like us, that's going to be more meaningful, but to the average person, once that uh, unlock happens with fiber, where like Alex was saying, it's more of a utility and more people have it in the future. I think we're going to find uh, ways to expand our capabilities and what we do as far as like transfers and speeds and streaming and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Next question. Rion Smith in Trinidad, West Indies. Have you guys heard of any upcoming usage for the stinger button on the ATEM Extremes? Well, it works now. There should be a use. The stinger should be able to fire off a stinger. So a stinger is, a, I believe, uh, actually, I don't know. Um, I've never tried to use it on on this. I know that I, we can use stinger on our end um, for larger switchers, but I realized as I started talking, I've never tried to do it with the extreme Noah. I was about to say the same thing. That's my experience as well. I haven't tried it yet on the extremes yet, but the larger switchers, we've used that for sure. Yeah, and what it does is it just plays out this thing and does the transition. So it's cut with a transition on it. Uh, usually you have an alpha channel on one side, alpha channel on the other. So it's it's a fast transition. I just don't think, I don't think that the ATEM Extreme has, let's see. Yeah, it doesn't have, the problem with it is, I think they put the button in there thinking that they would have more memory. I think that, and they, I think it didn't work. I mean, there's a couple of times when Blackmagic has done stuff to cameras and to other devices where they added something to do something and they never actually, software never actually catches up. Um, and I think this might be one of those cases because there's no, you know, you might be able to have it tie into the HyperDeck. The HyperDeck may be able to play it out. If you had it tied into a HyperDeck, um, it would play out that with Alpha Channel. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the media storage on the on the ATEMs uh, isn't only holds what thirty or sixty frames, so you can have one stinger that goes between everything. So if you have a stinger designed, you know, that's only about twenty or thirty frames right. to do a transition between live and replay, for example, you know, you could do it, use something like that. The NFL uses all the time. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Logitech now has a vertical mouse lift, like a little skyscraper on your desk for $70. Will it catch on? And it's got the link there. No, it will not catch on. It's a horrible idea. Next question. 
Next question from Rian Smith again in Trinidad. Is there a good resource to learn how to create Windows.bat files and be able to build simple automation tools? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, you know, in the command line of, uh, you know, bat files are basically running command line scripts. And uh, for their basic DOS scripts, if you go to open up a command window, just type command and click on the command button and it'll open up a little window. Just type help and any command that's in there or list of command help and it'll show you a list of commands and then help and then the command name and it'll show you all the things, the format or the syntax for typing that command. And you just type those commands on in, uh, you know, notepad, any text editor, one line, next line, next line, next line. You save it out as a file called .bat. And every time you double click on that .bat file, it will execute all of those uh, commands uh, in that batch file. And I'm sure you can find some tutorials online somewhere where on creating batch files that are handy for copying or moving things or sorting or deleting, deleting a lot of stuff in batches. That's great for doing batch work. Next question. Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. With the form factor of ATEM Mini, could you easily build an integrated system similar to this one? I think he's got a link there to a, an all-in-one with both the ATEM, the monitors, and the audio all-in-one case. Go ahead, Noah. Of course you can, yeah. So that's what a lot of our fly kits are, some sort of like mini version with all those components. The link that you provided uh, does have a pretty cool picture and a pretty cool build of what they have. But I had a, a show that I was on, a traveling show, and we had a TriCaster that went down. It stopped working. Um, and so in a pinch, we had a 17-inch monitor from Atmos, and we were able to switch the show and keep the show running with a built-in, you know, compact form like that. That was our backup, and it saved us on one event. So, yeah, it's possible, definitely possible. We built a lot of those. I probably wouldn't. That's probably not at a fit and finish of something that I would use in public. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, I, it's a little, it feels a little cobbled together at a couple different levels. So, um, uh, the, the cables just sticking, the cables going into it. I, I, I think that they're running straight into it. You want to have convenience panels for that. Um, a, uh, you know, so that the cables, you know, that it's all nice and tidy. Um, I probably pass, do a pass with black spray paint as well, just to kind of not have it feel like it's put together with particle board it might be but you don't want to have it look that way uh, one of the things that makes these things really uh easy to make by the way is a shop bot um we have uh, some folks that we work with have shop bots and it's basically a giant router for four to eight uh four to eight foot sheets <laughs> you just set it down you can just design what you want and it just cuts it all out and they build all their cases that way and you could build something like this really effectively with it Thanks so much to uh, all the great questions. We just cruised right through. It's like, you know, when we have second hours like this, uh, I, I, I always go, oh, maybe we don't need to do like something new every second hour. <laughs> so, so it's a really, really good day of Q&A. So thanks so much for everyone for all the questions that you put in there. Um, thanks to the panelists coming in on a Labor Day uh, for, you know, I think just about everybody here uh, was coming in from the U.S. So thank you so much for being part of this. We can't do this without you. And thanks to the to the incredible team on the back end um, that is doing uh, all of this work. Uh, they're building the the software that makes this work. They're they're organizing all these days. Um, they are um, cutting the show on uh, on a Labor Day weekend on a Labor Day itself. And uh, we just really appreciate everybody's effort there. Traveled 105,000 miles. That's 169,000 kilometers, and that is 834 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. I left my uh, 
we left our Amazon account on now. I got chaos. <laughs> oh, huge bill. I got a huge bill. Uh, no. Oh, <laughs> oh, no. So suddenly oh. all my, all, I got to move my accounts around today. I was like, yeah. How can I order some stuff on your Amazon account? <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. I need someone oh, the order. AWS. No, my it's AWS right. account got Yeah. Yeah, got it opened up. No, no, it's, it's yeah, what was normally twenty dollars was six hundred. Needs to make the sound of a penny <laughs> dropping into something every half a second. Yeah, it's just, that's what I was like. I was like, I always think Douglas is always too worried about that, and then and then it happens, and you're like, oh, he's right. Got to be careful with that. You know, so. an hourly cha-ching sound. Yeah, exactly, cha-ching. All right, see you guys. Have a good, have a good Labor Day. Adios.